And so it was this obvious tie-in. Well, okay, we can have Ocean's Eleven style uh, heist planning where it, it you see the planning well after the, you, you see the operation in motion. Um, and not only does it then stay in keeping with getting the game off the ground quickly, it also makes the scoundrels seem so much cooler because <laughs> the things that they planned for ac- are actually happening. They're not just like, well, okay, we'll we'll take some guard uniforms in a bag just in case, and then they never comes up. But if you do it as a flashback, then it's like, wow, these people are so clever, they actually brought guard uniforms in their bag. Howdy, friends. Um, I've done a lot of Insider Insight interviews on this show, um, and I think that this interview with John Harper, the creator of Blades in the Dark RPG and Agon RPG, might be the best interview we've had yet. John details how all of the innovations that he built into his games came about. We learn where they came from, how they came in, how they changed over time. Anybody interested in game design and in how games come to life are going to find this interview fascinating. John is very honest in his approach. And even if you don't play RPGs, I think you're going to get a lot out of this. So sit back and enjoy my time learning how the games Agon and Blades in the Dark came to life as I discuss them with their creator, John Harper. Enjoy. Playing a tabletop strategy game allows you to unplug and test your skills against friends. Every week, Third Floor Wars delivers useful strategies, discussions, battle reports, and reviews to tabletop games like Malifaux. If you want to get better at the games you already play, or discover the games other people are playing, you are in the right place. Craig and Ray welcome you to the Third Floor and the Tabletop Talk Broadcast. Craig here on the third floor. Today's guest is John Harper of 1-7. Now, John is best known for creating the role-playing game Blades in the Dark. Now, listeners to this podcast know that I fell back in love with role-playing games this past year. In fact, Kyle Rowan of Weird Games finally convinced me to pull the trigger and to get this game. Well, I bought it, uh, watched a few actual plays on Twitch and YouTube, immediately got a group together. We're going to be live streaming this game um, uh, in a couple days from when this is recorded, but you'll be able to catch it, um, obviously, when this is released. And I knew I had to try to track down John and get him to talk about this. This game is... uh, it's something else. So I went to the website to kind of figure out how to describe the game. So this is how it's described on the website. It says Blades in the Dark is a tabletop role-playing game about a crew of daring scoundrels seeking their fortunes on the haunted streets of an industrial fantasy city. There are heists, chases, occult mysteries, dangerous bargains, bloody skirmishes, and above all, riches to be had if you're bold enough to seize them. You and your fledgling crew must thrive amidst the threats of rival gangs, powerful noble families, vengeful ghosts, and the blue coats of the city watch, along with the siren song of your scoundrels' own vices. Will you rise to power in the criminal underworld? 
what are you willing to do to get to the top? Now, I don't know if you, you look at that, read that and hear that out loud. It's like, okay, yeah, sign me up. It sounds pretty cool. But um, followers, followers of our Twitch channel, YouTube channels know that I'm already broadcasting the actual plays, like I mentioned. And uh, I'm in love with what John created. So, John, welcome to the third floor. Great to be here. Thanks. All right. So there's a day. Uh, my guess is it was a while ago where John knew nothing about tabletop gaming. You had never picked up a die. You had never pretended to be somebody else. You'd never slayed a dragon. And then suddenly you saw it. So what was your first exposure to tabletop gaming? Uh, that was in 1984. Uh, a friend of mine had just had gotten a second edition Gamma World, uh, which had just oh, come out, nice. I think. Um, and I, I had never really heard of Gamma World. I'd heard of Dungeons and Dragons. My cousins and, and uncle had, had played it and, um, I'd seen some books, uh, at their house and was already into fantasy, uh, novels and, and comics and all that stuff. So I was primed to really, <laughs> to be excited about it, but they didn't want to play with a 10 year old. So, um, you know, I wasn't getting invited to the games or anything, uh, so nothing worse than being excluded by nerds. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah. So when my friend uh, told me about, it, I didn't, I didn't know uh, what it was. I didn't know it was an RPG when I went over to play it, and uh, we just did this sort of one-on-one, one GM, one player thing. And I'm sure it was just hilarious and weird from the outside <laughs> to have these two two kids like doing, not even knowing how to do it. You know, we didn't yeah. have the oral tradition of playing with people who had played with people who would played with people. So we made up whatever we did that day, um, and I was totally hooked. So I went and photocopied a bunch of pages out of his book <laughs> and took them home and uh, just became obsessed with it. And just, by happenstance, uh, we my family moved shortly thereafter, so I ended up with these photocopied sheets and was making new friends in the new neighborhood where we moved. And I, I said, hey, can everybody come over and play this game? You know, And so we had to sort of make up our own character sheets and make up our own rules for things and... Uh, we started this like little game design uh, hobby club, basically, because <laughs> we hadn't we didn't have any actual books and stuff. But everyone was really excited to to be a, a mutant uh, badger or something. Yeah. Uh, so you it sounds like you were just you were hooked, hooked from go. Oh, yeah, yeah. That I, I, I don't have a strong memory of that first session, except that there were robots and, and mutated rabbits and grass that excreted gasoline and we set everything on fire and uh, it was just it was very exciting uh to to have this new kind of experience and my my family they're they're creatives they're writers they're artists and so what you know we'd always made stuff in our household and written stuff and right so that kind of creative outlet was not foreign to me but it was uh this really nice blend of all those different things um and I immediately started, got out my graph paper and started writing my own thing and drawing my own illustrations and uh, Marvel superheroes uh, came next. And yep. so I was making colorful charts to roll on for different kinds of outcomes <laughs> and everything and uh, using my my markers and stuff. So uh, it's yeah. it's funny, like and I, I don't know if I were to pull out that old TSR Marvel game or not and read it and go, God, this is garbage. But I do remember as a kid just 
like because I did I did similar except I did, I found Gamma World later. Um, you're far more mature for me. I was D and D than Marvel. Um, yeah. But I I just I remember just like fall. That's when I got hooked. Hooked was when yeah. I played the Marvel game. Um, There's definitely I, good stuff in there. Like was that there? has survived the test of time. I mean, reading it now, it's a little little feels cluttered. It feels like they could have made a more streamlined thing. Right. At, in in our modern uh, eyes, but it has some really cool mechanics in there that really drive the Marvel comic style, the Peter right. Parker kind of thing um, with the karma system and stuff like that. And oh, God, having the these obligations system. and responsibilities to your loved ones and things. And it, it did really, if you wanted to play in that, that sort of classic Marvel mode where you're sort of a, a hapless in your real yeah. life. And then you have this heroic side. It, it, it worked really well for that. Um, plus That's just, funny. it's fun to like throw a car and have things blow up. So yeah. Um, yeah. And I, yeah. um, I remember uh, my buddy, my buddy got to be the Human Torch, and I got to be Mr. Fantastic, and it sucked <laughs> because, like, on paper, the two were not comparable at all. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, I quickly yeah. moved to Wolverine, uh, which nice. solved that problem. <laughs> so now there's one thing, you know, and we have similar stories in that way, but um, you you tend to mature, right? Um, and, and not necessarily as a human, well, as a human being, obviously, but as a gamer too. And when that happens, for a lot of people, they kind of quote unquote grow out of it, right? Like mm. I've heard people say, you know, I found girls and I found sports and stuff <laughs> like that. Um, other people stay with it, right? And it's a part yeah. of their life. So what happened with you as you got started getting older? Uh, I think it was a combination of things. Um, part of it was that I just happened to have a friend group that cut across all the clicks of that kids usually have so in our game group was uh the captain of our football team and the debate uh people and band people and the goth kids and like it we had been playing marvel and our homebrew stuff together before we were sort of in those clicks right and uh then we started playing BattleTech at lunch um, you know, play for keeps miniatures, you know, win, winner keeps kind of, kind of like yeah. games and stuff like that. And that whole clickiness of who you sit with and at the lunchroom and who, who you walk to school with and all those things, we, we kind of created this weird bubble where everybody was in it together and they were also in their own things. Like Bill was still in his, his like football, you know, friends and stuff. But, um, I think that helped sustain it and it also created interest from those circles of people that usually wouldn't have been interested. They would have been like, oh, that's weird nerd stuff. Right. But like their cool friend with the cool car is playing it. So they were like, well, maybe that's maybe it is cool. I don't know. <laughs> um, and so when I hear the stories of people and they're like, yeah, all the all the nerdy reject kids play D&D. Um, I totally get where they're coming from. But that just didn't happen in our particular set of, of, of friends. So um, oh, that's that, that helped sustain it for a long time. And then. By the time high school was was uh, coming to an end, roughly, um, we I, I was writing games uh, pretty seriously at that point, and some of my other friends were too. So, moving into college and then coming to Seattle and in the early days of Wizards of the Coast and that stuff, it kind of just kept going. It just it just uh, was a continuous thing. So so every one of us that have played these games, John, has created our own stupid homebrew. We've done, you know, <laughs> we created our own worlds and stuff like that. We've all done it, right? But but something happens for some people, um, and you're one of them, where you say, you know, either I don't know whether you take it more seriously, you're more diligent about it, or you're just better at it. It it, it becomes more than just that. At what point did you start to realize 
shit, I really like this, or, or, or maybe I'm really good at this and I want to take a shot at it, or did it just kind of happen? Uh, it, it it did kind of happen organically. Um, one of the games we played uh, in in junior high and high school was this game called Talus Lanta, which is uh, this old weird fantasy game from the early mid '80s. Um, that was uh, self published by by its author uh, and creator Steve Secchi. Um and uh, back 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 when it was totally viable to as a, as a creator, you had this like massive network of brick and mortar comic book and game stores that you could sell into. Um, even if you were a small time operation, you could right. you could move you know five figures worth of books um, at that time. And so uh, Steve's bizarro fantasy, they're sort of like acid trip seventies um, counterculture <laughs> underground comics kind of inspired. Sure, um, yeah. And they looked like nothing else on the shelves, and we got really into it. Really interesting system. One of the first game systems um, that had the kind of non-binary outcome, the kind of success, right. and then a success with a cost, and then a, like so. Once you play that kind of thing, it's yeah. hard to go back, you know. And th- and this was in the like 1989-ish, um, and we were like, wow, this is so cool. Yeah. So we were into Talisland, and nobody really knew what it was, but. In our group, it didn't matter because, again, it was that organic thing where we were just playing whatever. It's not like people were showing up and going, oh, why, aren't, why don't you have the new you know, edition for AD&D or something? Um, so we, I started to write sort of hacks or, or new settings and new ideas with the Talislanta system underneath it. Space bounty hunters and stuff like that. And right it, when I got my first sort of internet access email uh, in 92 or whatever that was... I immediately found this Talislanta like news group, uh, fan group, and started communicating with those people. And Steve, the creator, was on there, <laughs> and uh, you know, I started posting stuff. I, I made this thing, and he was like, "This is great! Like, let's we we should we should make stuff out of this." Uh, <laughs> yourself a little bit, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a whole group of creatives, um, and we wow. they, we started like a zine and started like putting stuff in the zine and. Um, that just happened to head in a direction where Wizards of the Coast ended up buying the Talisanta license. And no they, kidding. they produced, Jonathan Tweet wrote the third edition um, of Talislanta uh, before going on to do um, third edition D&D and stuff after that. And uh, so the Talislanta email list group thing that I had been on and like sharing my work and doing stuff with got pulled into the Wizards ecosystem a bunch of the Wizards writers, Rob Hainso and, and some of the people that ended up working on D&D were part of that group. Robin Laws was was part of that. Um, hmm. So when the feng shui playtesting started to happen in the 90s, uh, Robin was reaching out to the Talislanta people to, to playtest stuff. And um, I happened to be in Seattle where a lot of those people were, were starting to conglomerate. And so it was this gradual process of being a very excited fan, doing homebrew stuff uh, for my game group at home and just for fun to having this kind of body of amateur work that professionals right. were aware of. And so when it was time to reach out for freelance writers or, or play testers and stuff like that, somebody said, oh, let's get John to do it. Let's ask him to do it. And it, it just kind of slipped from uh, fandom into, hey, I'm doing this now. I've got someone sent me a paycheck. Uh, for, you know. <laughs> um, and uh, I was in college and, and it, uh, was he- heading into this career in graphic design, which I ended up doing. Um, but uh, I never, I never stopped having that sort of access because of this weird 
80s fantasy game that ended up connecting all these people. Um, and it still happens to this day where someone will say, oh, Talislanda? Oh, wow, that was the first game I played. I loved it so Isn't much. That and, something? Um, it's this obscure little thing, but um, yeah, it was... It, it was it was a, a a gradual process, I would say, right uh, from, right. from fan to, to sort of pro. And and I didn't even call out the art aspect, uh, John. So because you're responsible for the look of this, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that's all your artwork. And for those mm -hmm. of you that haven't seen it, go check it out. It's it's very striking. It's very fitting for it. Um, I pull his stuff off Google Images all the time to put up my <laughs> overlays on my twitch <laughs> so i'm stealing from you just so you know That's okay. um <laughs> but all right so now you're in college and this you suddenly st st money starts coming in right um mm -hmm. now did you finish uh your degree in design no well i was i was originally going to school to maybe teach english or something uh be an academic um and i was doing the gaming stuff it wasn't really paying any bills or anything but i was getting enough kind of connections um in the industry uh and this was, this was right before um magic was was published the first first printing of magic the gathering came out um and wizard was doing this game called everway which was another jonathan tweet experiment wow. um we play tested that and feng shui and stuff that was more like a fun side hobby for me uh but what i was starting to do for work was graphic design um because back then in in 90 you know, five ninety six. Uh, you could, you you were a website designer if you had PaintShop Pro <laughs> and Notepad. Yeah. And so, and I did. <laughs> so, <laughs> my friend and I started doing this sort of side business where we designed websites for like banks and stuff. They would let us do that for because there was nobody else who did. There's that. There's nobody else. Yeah, uh, I remember that. Yeah. 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 And that became a job, and I was. He was sort of the main coder side, haha, -ha. <laughs> HTML, uh, but still <laughs> coding side, and I was the the graphic side, and um, yeah, eventually that just overtook our time, and and I I didn't I didn't finish my degree, and I was working full time as a graphic designer uh, before I, I I got a degree in anything, and I I didn't go to school for graphic design even, so right. um, that's another thing that just kind of was a thing I started to do until it overtook my hours and, and I was starting to pay my bills. And, you know, when you get in that situation where you're like, I guess well, I'm this, an artist. <laughs> yeah, like this, this other way is paying my bills and then school is <laughs> sapping my bank account. So I know which way I'm going to go. Oh, um, that's funny. And yeah, I was I was in tw tw I had a 20 year career in uh, as a as an art director and um, before transitioning to full time game design in, in 2015. You know, it's funny. We had uh, Dennis Detwiller on the show, mm, the guy yeah, yeah. who created uh, um, Delta Green or one of the guys. And he he was in that orbit, too, oh, yeah. there with. Oh, uh, I, I have a story about Dennis, actually. And, well, let's and, hear a story about Dennis. Well, it's not specifically about Dennis, but but uh, Pagan Publishing was here in Seattle. And uh, John Tynes um, mm -hmm. had written this game called Puppetland, uh, which is a, this bizarro little game where you play with a stopwatch. You play for an exactly an hour. Um, you only speak in character. Uh, you're these little puppets, uh, like a Punch and Judy kind of uh, situation. <clears throat> and we had played it a few times, and my friends were making marionettes and shadow puppets and doing voices, and it was getting out of control. So uh, I, I told John about it on, on the internet, and and he said, oh, that sounds really cool, and don't I know your name for some reason? And yeah, 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 We I did stuff for 
for these games and things. And we're, we're working on publishing a thing. And he goes, oh, you should come over to the Pagan House and I'll, let me show you the ropes and like how to contract distributors and all this stuff. Uh, so we went over there and, and um, as I recall, uh, Dennis was there painting a cover or something in the basement at the time, and we didn't actually meet. It was like we walked through, and he was kind of like, oh. <laughs> um, "Yeah, that's Dennis." <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, it was like being at—I don't know—it was like in the heart of the beast yeah. there, where all this stuff was happening, and that John in particular helped us out so much and gave us so many connections and helped us get our uh, first game publications out into the world and was just a huge supporter of us um, creatively and, and as a, I've as only a ever peer. heard heard good things about John. Um, yeah, I've like never met him. He's on my hit list um, to get <laughs> that, on the show. That would be great. Um, yeah. yeah. But um, you are not the first person that has only ever spoken kind words about him. Um, so um, we're going to get get deep into a lot of your actual creations when you start you know, publishing and, and um, getting at a, at a whole nother level there. But before we do that, I'd like to get an idea of what non Harper games are you playing now? So what what when you take a break um, and well, first of all, do you play games for fun anymore? Oh, yeah, it, you do. Yeah, OK, yeah. 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 Um, I try to for the most part, I, I try to think of my job as a game designer first and foremost to play games and 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 fill notebooks with ideas and then secondarily to to produce games i, I feel like putting p play first uh helps me a lot as a as a game designer and i think that's true for a lot of creative things if you're reading uh stuff that excites you you're going to be more excited to write and yep it's it's kind of in that vein and not just that but staying um informed about the state of the art is important to me and i, I try to always be playing something very very recent if i can and also kind of catching up um on the swaths of games that i haven't been able to i keep like this sort of uh spreadsheet and i i, I it's it's a hard to count but i 350 ish <gasps> rpgs uh is where i am at this point and I, i'm try, trying to get to 400 <laughs> um, but yeah i take it pretty seriously and that was helped uh along but i had a game group for a long time where we played three-shot uh, series and we played as many games as we could and just switch gms and so in the course of a year even we would play just a bunch of different games and that that helped pad those stats but also kind of see <laughs> a bunch of other uh approaches to games and things so yeah i'm always i'm always playing something and right now uh i just started the other night i played uh, ran the first session of a monster of the week uh series which is sort of yeah. like supernatural tv show yep. rpg um, it's based on power of the po uh, powered by the apocalypse right? yeah yeah mm -hmm. yep. yep um i that's another game that was a big influence on me vincent and, and meg and i are friends in, in real life but when apocalypse world was first being formulated and i got those first the first email of like hey look at this i have an idea for a thing and it just blew my mind um <laughs> so uh the whole pbta thing has been awesome to see explode and I tried at first, you could play everything that was happening in that sphere, uh, Apocalypse World and Monster Hearts and the stuff that was coming on Dungeon World. Yep. And now it's just like this massive sea of things and I'm way far behind in, in, in uh, staying current with that stuff. But uh, I have this, this game group that's kind of the, um, the all-star uh, group, the best, the best uh, RPG group I've ever had. And... Um, 
we are, are loosely planning on trying to do some kind of case study thing to to try to communicate some um, skills and techniques used at the table, which is as opposed to like writing a role playing game, like instead right. of tr- talking about what we do, how we make decisions and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, who knows if that's going to materialize, but um, we uh, we picked Monster of the Week because it suits our group's kind of dynamic of the uh, irreverent, um, wise cracking team of <laughs> of people doing dangerous stuff so um but i found the game really cool I, it, it's it's got some pbta innovations in it uh that are now like many years old but they're integrated in a way that's really cool to see so that's been fun we just we only did one session so far but um yeah that was really good so when you're playing that john um and maybe this that's not a good example because you've got kind of a side uh thing that you're doing with that right mm-hmm. but let's say that you're sitting down with with a game and it's just with your buddies and how often does john the player get to take over versus john the designer like do mm. you find yourself going oh that's really interesting how that worked you know notebook notebook um <laughs> yeah. like or or can you unplug and 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 just immerse yourself and just play the game um, I think I, I, I tend not to completely unplug. Yeah. I think, yeah. um, it j- just in general, I think our local play culture, I say our, like the, the, my, this group that I'm talking about, but also kind of, there's a, uh, part of the Seattle sort of indie RPG scene, I would say, doesn't value immersion in that way a whole lot. There's kind of a culture of play that's more, a little more meta interesting um and has a tendency to really keep this sort of player to player channel open at all times and say things like oh that's interesting i you know me john like i think that's an interesting thing you just said shannon um <laughs> and and we're kind of like i, I, I don't want to oversell it because it's not like very disruptive <laughs> to the fictional it's like mystery thing. 3000 of your there, role-playing game <laughs> it is it's like a director's commentary track or something you know? right um it, it's not super disruptive like it's con- like it's constantly happening but it is always there and we also have this thing where we'll we will uh sort of make this meta decision to, in the best interests of the game so we'll we'll be like okay wait wait, wait. i think what we're trying to do here is get to that really awesome showdown at the, uh, the explosives factory and like can we just that th- this scene ends right. you know, everyone says the things that they say about the th- thing now we cut to the van smashing through the gate and everyone's yep. shooting like and we are always kind of looking for those places to make those kind of decisions as opposed to just sort of slavishly going through our characters minute by, by minute life um, and I think because of that sort of play culture, right? Um, I'm never, I'm never fully immersed, so to speak. Anyway, so I, my designer brain is is also going to be engaged in, um, and and everyone in the game group is a is a game designer too. This particular group, so we're commenting as we're doing something really right. fun in the fiction. Uh, Sage Latora, who's in that game, the co-author of, of Dungeon World, is in that game, and. Um, he'll be like, ooh, that's a really interesting way to do that. I like the way they, they have this movie structured. And we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> In, anyway. I'm uh, publishing it first. <laughs> you're, you're crashing your car. Um, and that's, and that's a next, is another part of the fun. Sure. Uh, I, I think if that was a detracting component for somebody, 
um, then we definitely wouldn't do it. It's right. It, 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 it's a thing that everyone enjoys. So, um, well, it's it's part of your play, right? So yeah. it happens to be tied to the way your brain is wired, right? And the way that you do things. But, um, you know, what do they say that, you know, we get to decide what our play looks like. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nobody else gets to dictate that. So that's interesting. So guys, uh, the Insider Insight series is my opportunity to bring on writers, designers, developers, artists, and other tabletop gamers to talk about what they do, why they do it the way they do it, and really kind of try to pull back the curtain um, on what they create. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk to John today about uh, obviously the concept and the setting for Blades. We're going to talk about some of the, what I consider very innovative mechanics um, and really just it's a it's different than any game i've ever seen um now granted i'm not nearly i don't have a spreadsheet of 400 games but uh so it doesn't take much to impress me john so don't get too uh <laughs> big-headed about it <laughs> but um uh i really want to explore that and last but not least uh john's got a new game that i can't wait to talk about so we'll take a quick break we'll be right back When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Howdy friends, Craig here. You deserve a new play mat. Here on the third floor, we use mats by Mars. They are scratch resistant, waterproof, wet erase marker compatible, almost free of glare and lighter than neoprene. Mats by Mars gives you over 40 designs to choose from. You pick a mat, pick a design, and then you pick an overlay, like one for Marvel Crisis Protocol, Star Wars Legion, or even Malifaux 3rd Edition. Those overlays will really speed up your deployment and make the placement of objective markers so easy. Use our promotion code in the show notes to get a 10% discount on your first order. In the notes of your order, you can even request the third floor logo on your mat for free. That makes the best mat in the business even a little better. So get some new mats, save yourself some money, and help support the show. Go to matsbymars.com. All the details are in the show notes, including the discount code. So now we get a sense that, you know, John, uh, playing a ton of games, um, has kind of wandered into design and gone beyond just, you know, my homebrew world, um, has surrounded himself in an atmosphere with, uh, with fellow people that have the kind of the same like-mindedness. Um, at some point, the kernel was found, right? At some point nothing close to blades ever existed in your head. And then you saw something, you, you played around with something. Where do you, where do you see the initial seed? There were kind of two main um, components that, that led directly into it. One was running uh, Warhammer uh, fantasy uh, second edition series 
for quite a while. It was more than a year. I forget exactly how long it ran, but um, it was a classic fantasy sandbox game in the city of uh, Prague in that in that setting. Um, and it was we started with this simple premise: uh, the the patriarch of the family had died. The children, who were the PCs, had come back to bury him and found nothing but debts uh, and all these debtor debt collectors that were there demanding payment. And I gave them, you know, here's how much gold you have in the family coffers, who you're going to pay off, who you're going to make angry. Uh, and then based on those decisions and those, uh, you know, uh, positive and negative outcomes, we created enough grist for that mill for dozens and dozens of sessions <laughs> of play. Um, and characters died and new, new people came in. And it was this really nice organic sandboxy thing. And I had tended to run games sort of in that way of kind of following the PCs around as opposed to kind of making adventures for them to to go on. Um, but that series was one of the high watermark experiences for gaming. And I, I wanted to stay in that space and really um, play the sandbox uh, stuff as much as I could. Uh, and a little bit after that, Kevin Crawford published uh, Stars Without Number, which is a, a science fiction um, sandbox game um, one of the best ones made I think uh, it has all these great tools for the GM to instantly roll up a sector and planets and politics and crossing factional allegiances and you can do that on the fly at the table right. even uh, which you kind of need in a space game because the group might just fly off to who knows where uh, so you... who gave them a spaceship yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 uh... And, and that's another one we played, you know, 100 sessions of that or something wow. like that um, with this fairly large group. And everyone had three characters because the game is very deadly. And so it it really was the it, the Expanse, if, if you've seen the Expanse TV oh, yeah. show or read the books. Um, we, we set our game in the solar system and we kind of changed the hyperdrive stuff so it was very all local. Um, and we had the Jupiter Jovian faction and, and the... The, the the Mars faction and stuff and about halfway through uh, one of the players read the first uh, <laughs> expanse book and was like oh my god I can't believe this uh, you have to read these they're so they're so cool and I know no, those were authors uh, played a game uh, that inspired the novel so they they played I uh, didn't know that they played a hack of D twenty modern I think it was um, to to create uh, the uh, some of those stories and things um, unbelievable yeah it all it all connects. Um, but the Stars Without Number game was another just incredible experience of creating a sort of s starting situation, some boundary conditions, different factional organizations and crossing interests, and then letting the PCs just sort of go and do whatever. Um, so by the time that was wrapping up, it was time to play a new game. And I'm a big fan of uh, Thief, the uh, the video game series. Yeah. Uh, and, and Harvey Smith's follow-up, um, Dishonored, uh, had just come out, and then the new, the sort of Thief reboot, um, was on the way, and people were excited about it, and I was thinking, yeah, okay, it's time, let's do, let's do that thing. Uh, hmm. let's do the, like, Thieves Guild in the Fantasy City game. The, you know, it's okay. the, it's the one, you always think about it, like, uh, Fawford and Grey Mouser, or... Thieves nice. World or any of those types yeah. of things. I'm like, this game group is going to be super into it, and um, it's time to just try it out. I feel like we're on a hot streak with the sandboxing stuff. Uh, so I had played, I had run a um, Dungeon World. Well, it started out with with the like 81 Moldvay D&D box set game that, that morphed into a Dungeon World game. 
right at the office with my coworkers, um, and that ended up in a in a cataclysm. They the, the players, two of the players, really uh, destroyed the the world. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and did they level up after that yeah yeah well one of them became immortal so i guess that's like, pretty good um but they they left they ex- exploded the sun and let all the ghosts out of the underworld and destroyed the whole whole setting um so i said well look, we could play during the cataclysm uh if you want or we could like set it like a thousand years in the future and right you know do that and they said oh let's do that a thousand years in the future <laughs> So I wrote the sketch of the setting, which became the Blades in the Dark setting, which was this sort of industrial era uh, fantasy world with where it's night, the sun is 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 uh, weak, and uh, there's ghosts everywhere, and cities are surrounded by lightning barriers to protect them, and um, that that came from our our D and D game, and it created this interesting thing where the exploits of that old group were kind of the the Greek myths almost of the, of the industrial setting. (laughs) And it it became extra fun to like drop a name, a legendary (laughs) name. And the group's like, Oh boy, we know what that's about. Um, so when it was created your own mythos, that's amazing. Yeah, exactly. It was really cool. Um, and when it was time to do like the, the underworld component of that, uh, I was like, well, it's, it's like a dark industrial thing, kind of like thief. Uh, kind of already the setting is very similar um, and we have this sort of haunted component in, in um, spectrology and things so that seems like a nice pairing with with people darting around in the shadows right uh, so that setting um, led to starting the first sort of on the fly kit bashing play testing for what would become the uh, blades so you, you've got the setting at this point, and the setting is a com- it sounds like a combination of something that you guys created as a group, really, mm-hmm. right? But but inspired, right? And you named those inspirations, things that you pulled in that gave you the settings off of video games and yeah. and stuff like that, which is absolutely fascinating. So y- you know where you're going to play, yeah. right? You've said this is the tone, this is this is the world, um, and you've already hinted at it. Where does like the the first set of mechanics come from? Do you just say let's take something from here, let's take something from there? Yeah, I had a, you know, it, for me being a designer is having a dozen different designs uh, on the burners, and then maybe five of them are in some you know fo- written form or or starting layout, and then maybe two of those are a little promising. <laughs> um, and they're kind of bubbling to the surface. So there's always this like churn of a bunch of stuff right. happening. And some of those at the time, since I was still uh, working in, in the creative agency world, um, I would I would make a, a little two-page game or a five-page game or whatever, and i just publish it on my, on my website. Hmm. Uh, so I had an outlet for these ideas, um, but no, nothing that would be like a game product, like a book you would sell in a store. They were all these right. very light, small, um, fun little things to do. Uh, and during the process of making those and and playtesting Apocalypse World and, and other games from people in that community, um, there, there was a suite of different mechanics that were kind of all churning around. And so the very first session uh, was using a system that kind of ended up, it, it modified, but it... it I have a game called Lasers and Feelings, which is this one single sheet, a one-sided sheet of paper game, or it's sort of a Star Trek uh, homage. And uh, 
it has to do with having a, a, a character number that you roll over or roll under uh, for different things uh, inspired by a game called Troll Babe. And that was a very easy, simple way to get started since the setting was already fairly evocative. Right. And what the characters did was well understood. Um, I thought, okay, let's start out really, let's do it the simplest way possible so we can just play tomorrow. Um, and this kind of over-under mechanic is extremely simple. So we started there, and I find that this works for me for most of the designs I've I've taken to completion, is starting somewhere where there's a, a character sheet with enough graphic design to make people understand what it's supposed to be. Like, ooh, this looks like dark gothic fantasy. Okay, I get it. Yep. Some words on that sheet that make you excited, like, what's a whisper? What's a leech? That sure. I, I, I want to know what that is. That's interesting. <laughs> And then enough of a mechanic to just get through a session of play without a lot of friction. And then over time, you can add and where you, there's obvious holes and you can patch stuff and change. And so we started with this very simple roll over under, roll a single d6 kind of thing, almost flipping a coin, really. Yeah. Uh, but that group was really into it. They were into their characters. They were into the situation right away. Couldn't wait to show up next week and play. So we did that for two years. We played. Wow. We played. I iterated next <laughs> week. Dylan would show up and so say, so do we have new character sheets? Like, yep, here, <laughs> yes, here you go. You have to recopy. Same name at the top, yeah. right? <laughs> recopy all your stuff over. Wait, I don't have any of my, that's not on this new sheet. Yeah, well, it's gone now. Uh, and yeah, for, for just about two straight years, almost never, almost not missing a week. Uh, just played and iterated and played and iterated until we got to the the bones of what the kind of primary blades in the dark things position and effect and we'll talk about some of that maybe but um using clocks the way we use them and those things once they started to solidify then we kind of were like oh this is gonna be a thing to finish and turn into a book Um, before that it was just a fun experiment and can we do a a cool thief sandbox game right Um, yeah so I'd be curious, John, let's say I go to the, the Harper archives, right, where we've got all of these old character sheets, all these iterations, <laughs> and I were to pull them all out and mm-hmm. lay them out in chronological order. Where would I find what I what I as an outsider would say there's blades? Yeah, like, that's when that's when it became blades. When do you think that happened and what was it? Uh, I, I, I will tell you, I will also say that I, I have a YouTube channel and um one of the videos, I think it's one of the most recent ones. Well, recent is like from years ago, but <laughs> I don't post a lot on YouTube. Um, Your annual posting. Yeah, yeah. My friend Andrew and I, we, we walk through all the uh, character sheets and oh, talk wow. about the, the development and, and what changed with each version. So for people listening that are like really interested in the, the real answer, um, you can go watch that YouTube video and, and see all the nitty gritty of, of what changed. But... Um, yeah, I would say that the, 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 the real solidifying moment was when the, uh, crew sheet really arrived, which is in blades. You can be a bunch of different types of underworld crews. You can be, uh, thugs, uh, which we call bravos. You can be assassins. You can be thieves. Um, and that the type of organization that you're sort of striving to become has its own, uh, character sheet. And that wasn't something that I had ever had in a role-playing game before. And um, it was a constant issue in our Stars Without Number game, which it it was kind of a fun issue, but 
almost every week someone would say what are we trying to do are we space pirates are we like what what are we trying to do exactly right uh and having that solidified choice was cool to say at the start this is how we're going to focus our efforts and then having it be it's kind of its own character uh like they always say about firefly like you know serenity is is the the ninth character or whatever for of the show um once it became its own sheet and its own thing it really it just changed everyone's perspective on what the game was and really helped it have an identity uh right separate from yeah we're just we could just be playing D, but we're at the guild um yep. once once we got to that character sheet for the crew it it started to take off and then later the things that people now think of as kind of the primary features like flashbacks and and stress and the position system and stuff like that those were they came in a little later and they were refinements um of existing things that got sort of whittled down into the their final forms Got it. So I'd be curious. So we start with the world. We've defined the world. We've got that. We've got some mechanics coming in. We've got mechanics coming out. We get things that are changing mechanically as they go. Does the world change in that process at all? Or was the world that you started this in the world that we play in now? Yeah, it's pretty much the same. No Uh, kidding. It was started with there's a starting situation in the book if you want to have one. For your for your first games um where the leader of this gang called the lamp blacks brings you into his office in his turf and he says hey the the gang that used to run this territory their leader's dead there's no one here to keep the peace we got an old vendetta against our enemies we're going to go take them out you're either with us or against us and so that's a little kickoff thing for the group like are you going to piss off this guy because he's very powerful are you going to go along with him and then be put up against this other group that's too tough for you to fight are you going to take the third option and just like not do either of those or whatever uh that was on the almost the first sheet of the first week that we played that's that starting situation was there already um and then the exact names of everything started to you know shift the map of the city got sort of morphed and updated over time the factions grew and and shifted around but almost all of that stuff the seeds of it were there from the beginning Mm -hmm. but because we were playing every week i wasn't just like designing a game i was like showing up to run a a role-playing game uh so i had to do prep for like well who who is in charge of the ghosts and stuff somebody must be i guess i need to put something in for that right Um, so it it, over time it, it grew and a, a huge, huge chunk of the setting material uh, came from our actual sessions of play, the names of NPCs and, and all of that. Hmm, so that's, that's it was less of a huge writing chore at the end. <laughs> um, I still writing the book took a, a couple of years. It was, it was a big, big project for me, but um, the ideas were, were there. Uh, they needed to be beaten into shape and written and edited and everything. Um, so let's say let's say that you're taken to lore court, okay, and uh, you're being charged with stealing, right? Yeah. So if someone says, "Okay, uh, your whole world, John, is just a Frankenstein monster of everything that's always existed before, and <laughs> you're guilty of just stealing from here and there and stuff." Yeah. Which is there something that you could say that say, you know what? Yeah, that's where it started. But now that I look at the world, this is th- this part's original. Like this was born. Uh, of all of that um Hmm. do you see something that you think is signature something that that you say yeah like we like this is this was new 
Uh, in terms of the setting, I get I, not not particularly. Uh, there there is a there's like a confluence of different things. There's there's thief and dishonored, obviously. There's the real world, the the drudgery of early industrial uh, London, let's say. Right. Um, the whaling industry uh, yep. is a huge factor um, in all, in all fiction. I think whale punk has even been coined for game, uh, games and stuff that that draw on that kind of um, early industrialization period. Um, and and also the way that the, the sort of nobility and the, the world of kings is, is coming to an end, which is a problem in Blades in the Dark because the emperor is an immortal sorcerer that can't be uh, <laughs> defeated. So um, that changes things. Yeah. Um, but I think in terms of sitting at the table and playing it, um, something that a lot of people comment on as, as a kind of unique thing lore-wise for them is access to this kind of spirit world uh other it's another vector for doing stuff vector's I, a great way to describe i it, guess yeah. kind of in the way that the like the matrix is in in shadowrun or something i get i guess sort of like that yeah um, it's not quite the same but there's this direction you can move in that isn't right. just knives and 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 cudgels and sneaking through shadows there's this other thing you can do that and it's not casting spells either which is how a lot of fantasy stuff typically handles that yeah. um it's an actual kind of veiled we call it the ghost field um and there's spirits in there and there's there are buildings in there that you can't see and there's <laughs> you know it, it it creates this kind of uh, other world uh space to play in and yeah. that that's hardly new i mean that's alice in wonderlander there's a million things that use that type of idea but um people that are used to kind of sword and board and fireball fantasy, they yep. they often comment on that that part of the setting as a as an interesting, different kind of thing. And was that there at the beginning, John, or did that, that appear through play as well? It was there from the beginning, um, not not as extensively as it as it turned out to be. It was there mostly because in the lore of the setting, the way the world was destroyed, the cataclysm and the ghosts being being unleashed. Uh, we needed to, uh, just to have some reason why they weren't flooding the cities and, and causing a huge problems. So, okay, well, they have lightning barriers. That's Those are neat. Uh, why does that work? Oh, because they cut off the ghost field. What's the ghost field? Uh, <laughs> it's the, where all the ghosts live. You know? um, but, but also, Dylan, one of the players, uh, he he just played you know, very uh, optimistically. He's like, I want to be someone who has like magical stuff. Like he hadn't, we hadn't defined magic, how it worked. In the sure. Setting. He's like, I'm going to be that. And we're like, great. Um, and first scene, first session, he said that he was doing this ritual where he was sort of like taking a, a, someone's ghost out of their body and swapping it into another body. And we're like, Ooh, that's neat. Uh, <laughs> let's go further in that direction. And yeah, um, the ghost stuff really started to just come out of play and his character exploring, trying to learn new abilities and things. Um, so one thing that um, I think is really neat, um, John, is, you know, I come, I, so I'm an old dude um, and played role-playing games for a long, long period of time, took a, a long break. Um, so like the last time I was playing hardcore role-playing games, it was, you know, it was like GURP second edition, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and 
So the world I walked away from when I stopped playing role playing games, that what was the thing then was was kind of that open world GURPS, um, you know, a system that can handle anything. And when I came back a year ago, so much had changed. Yeah. <laughs> um, so much has changed. Um, yeah. And one of the things that I noticed was the specialization um where now what we're going to do is we're going to create a system for something very specific and it's one of the first thing that i recognized in blades in the dark is that it was it was a this is a specific type of game this is a game that's in a very specific world and you are you don't get to have the choice to be this you know anything you want to be you're going to be an underworld character and you're going to be in a crew and you're going to do heists mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. um and I, I got to tell you, at first, because of where I came from, um, having, you know, Rumpelstiltskind a whole bunch of years, <laughs> um, I was like, wow, I, like, I don't know if I like that. Um, but now that I've explored it more and pushed it in it more, it makes a ton of sense. Um, do you find that you prefer that, that you like like this is what we're going to do and we're going to build around that and we're going to make that and when we talk about your new game there's there's uh, flavors of this as well um and we'll get to that but did you, am i making any sense whatsoever yeah, yeah. like absolutely like, like like is that where you feel happiest where you have a, a closed very specific goal ecosystem and this is this is the game this is what we're going to play yeah I, I really i do a lot and before games are being written in that way um, it was a kind of, uh, I wouldn't say duty necessarily, but maybe a kind of a responsibility for the, for the game master or the uh, game facilitator to do some of that work. Um, right. so you're not just saying, okay, uh, your fantasy characters do stuff. Uh, yep. I don't think anyone has ever run a game quite like that. Usually it's, you're in this town. Everyone is talking about how the orc armies are amassing at the southern border. Uh, there's a militia uh, people coming around trying to recruit you. And there's something like a situation that you're being stuck into. And there's always that idea that gaming, role-playing games, you can be anything, you can do anything. Um, <laughs> which is true in the broad sense, but in terms of doing something at the table, um, the the person running it can only... Uh, prepare so much and can only improv so much and so you need some kind of coordinating right idea and then the other thing that came up a lot especially in our like when we were younger playing games it was just chaos you know uh, people weren't paying attention and we were just you know shooting free throws in the backyard while we're trying to play and anything goes kind of mayhem um under those conditions you really do you, people can feel uh like the, they have to uh, uh, restrict themselves to not ruin the game, air quotes. Interesting, yeah. Um, and so, like, oh, geez, I don't know. I, we did this whole setup, and we're going, we're in, it's like session six. My paladin wouldn't even be here. Like, this <laughs> is, for me to even say that I go along with any of this makes no sense. I should just, I should just leave. And there was also this pressure that, like, it's a one-to-one -one thing. That's my character. If they leave, I, I'm not playing in the group now or something. Right. And yeah. there's all these kind of pressures. And from the GM side, too, like, geez, I don't want to, like, follow through on these consequences because that's going to ruin everything that is happening here. Yeah. So I need to kind of fudge it around so it doesn't that doesn't quite happen that way. 
and that can that can work and sometimes it, it's not very noticeable and things get get worked out but what i noticed over time and i think a lot of designers coming into that sort of early 2000s design scene when i was getting really involved in um game theory and, and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff design theory um what we started to notice was if you restrain things very specifically within that that restraint you can play very hard <laughs> and you can play your character fully committed because you didn't create a character at the beginning that's going to play themselves out of the game interesting the game set you up its character creation process created fit characters for the thing we're going to do now and within that i can do whatever i want because right there there's no uh there's no way to ruin it. And same thing with the GM side. They can play very hard back. Yeah. Because you're, this game is about uh, conflicting loyalties on a sinking submarine in World War II. Like, yep. anything goes at, after that. Uh, and, and you can play super hard. Um, it's, a, it's a good feeling. Yeah, it's very fascinating, too. Like, and I, I'm trying to think of an analogy in my head. And the only thing that's coming to my head, and I might be way off here, is like, yes, you can walk into a movie theater and theoretically you could see any movie. Right. But but you don't. Right. You go to the movie theater to go see Die Hard, to go to a movie theater to go see, you know, uh, you know, uh, 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 the new action movie. And that kind of makes sense to me. Right. And like I said, my initial reaction, because it's all I knew before was, whoa, 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 that's not role playing. That's, you know. But man, after doing it, John, I just like, yeah, because it, it feels like. What I thought were important decisions weren't really that important. And what I thought I loved it wasn't really what I loved hmm. and having that burden lifted a little bit allows me. And I love that term play hard. Now I can let, let's do this. Yeah. Let's let's tell some freaking stories because <laughs> because we, because yeah. a lot of the stuff is has been taken care of for us, maybe is another way to put it, um, and especially on the GM side, which is absolutely fantastic. So we're kind of bleeding into this, John. So I'm going to take a quick break. I want to talk about some of the mechanics and um, when I read Blades the first time, John, it kind of blew my mind same way that uh, the last this happened to me with uh uh jay little's narrative dice like mm. when i first came across narrative dice i was like holy <laughs> cow i've never seen it like i came from d6s and d10s right and target numbers that's the only thing i knew existed and then yeah. i saw little's narrative dice and i'm like holy crap this is the craziest <laughs> thing i've ever seen then i read your book and i'm like jesus <laughs> you know so i want to talk about some of these mechanics which for me are all brand new and incredibly innovative but but just like the setting, right? The setting is now your setting, but it comes from places. I want to talk about where they came from, how they became yours, and, and why they work. So we'll be right back. Howdy, friend. Craig here. Is this episode making you realize you need to buy some models? Gadzooks Gaming is my favorite online retailer because of their large selection, killer prices, and great customer service. Don't you hate buying an entire crew box when you only need one model? Gadzook sells crew box models individually and saves you a ton of money. They even have free shipping to the U.S. and Canada if you spend $100 or more. Swing by GadzooksGaming.com and make sure you tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. All the details are in the show notes. So I wish I could take everybody back uh, 
back. So uh, listeners know, heard the moment on our 100th episode, I think it was, that I was uh, talking with um, Kyle from Weird Games. And um, he, you know, brought up, we were talking about things that influence him as a designer and stuff that he's playing now. That's what it was. And and uh, Kyle said, oh, he goes, I love Blades in the Dark. And um, everybody else on the podcast is groaning because apparently that's all that Kyle talks about <laughs> is, is Blades in the Dark. And um you know, you, your game was on my radar. Um, I've now picked up some, some people, a circle of RPG people, um, that I lean on. Um, and you know, your game kept coming up, kept coming up and I'm like, Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, uh, had not, had heard of powered by the apocalypse had not delved into that. So some of that stuff is, was tangentially understood it, but didn't know it. So finally I'm talking to Kyle and I'm like, you know, screw it. I'm going to order the damn book. So I get the book, John, and um, I start flipping through it and it, it it blew my mind because there were in each one of these mechanics that I want to talk about. There was my initial reaction and then the oh, so uh, for those listening, let's, I, I, if it's all right with you, John, I want to kind of walk through it. Um, so so one of the first things that came across to me was the concept of playbooks. Now, remember that I knew nothing about pop moves from Power to Buy the Apocalypse when I came across your game. Um, so what do you think is an easy way for us to explain what playbooks are? Uh, the way I think of it is imagine a character class from a game, a fighter or a wizard or whatever. Uh, but everything you need to play that character th through their through their lifespan or, or or a certain level range or whatever, everything you need is on one piece of paper or in a little booklet or something. The the original Apocalypse uh, version, Apocalypse World version, were a little uh, that were actual booklets, right. uh, so that's why they were called playbooks, I think, originally. But um, now they're usually just a, a sheet, and it it not only gives you a place to record information uh, like traditional character sheets do, but it also has all of your abilities sort of written out for you. Uh, it has, you know, maybe equipment, maybe appearance cues, all kinds of stuff for the player to use in play so that they don't really need to crack the book open and look stuff up all the time. And it's it's almost like a, uh, it's every board game now has this. You As a player, you have your little little sheet, cheat sheet in front of you <laughs> that tells you what to yeah. do on your turn and how to trade resources and things. It's sort this of that your special idea. ability. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a... A user interface development in gaming. The systems contained in a playbook may be familiar if you've played any kind of class-based kind of game, but there, it's an organizational um, idea to put everything in front of them uh, for for use at the table. And that was the first as a perfect first example for me of something that immediately seemed very limiting, very constrained, and you know, all these walls are up here. Why are these walls here? And you know, after seeing some actual play, after delving into it to myself, I realized again how freeing it is. Um, and what seems like a linear path is not a linear path because there's all different ways to go. Um, and that that's very fascinating for me. Um uh, one of the people that I was talking to before um, I interviewed you and uh, somebody who I've been working through Blades in the Dark with um, uh, talked about, you know, these are the, this is this is where Blades of the Dark made their mark. Um, and they're very similar to you, John. They have been uh, following role playing games for a long, long time. Right. So unlike me, they understood the progression in the history that's happened for the past 20 years, which I missed. Um, and one of the things that uh, was talked about is the idea of this engagement role. So for people listening, mm -hmm. you have a score. 
right? So you decide this is what we are going to do. This is the job we're going to go on. And before that happens, and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, John, you, you probably know it a little bit better than I do. Um, you, you have this engagement role. And um, I first, an engagement role kind of sets the opening scene um, of, of the episode. Um, first off, is, is that new, that concept? Kind of. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it was a solution. Uh, Paul Riddle and I were working on a game called the regiment, uh, a, a power by the apocalypse game, which exists in kind of its final beta form. We didn't end up publishing it. Paul's working on a totally new version, but, um, it's a, a game about telling war stories in the vein of, of a war, a war film, like saving private Ryan or something. And, um, we played it a bunch. Paul is a, a real, like, uh, well, both of us are, but Paul more so is a, a real history buff and, um, expert in, in all that stuff. And as a GM, he's as good as a, a, like fully functioning World War II simulation computer as, as you could ask for. <laughs> uh, so that made it really easy to, to play and have these gripping, situations that were very accurate to, to real life and um, we just had a ton of fun playing it but after a, a long time of playtesting and thinking we were moving towards publication we noticed there was this problem with it where the very very often almost always the the starting conditions of that engagement with the enemy when we're getting down to like the shooting's about to start the starting conditions usually like decided by the gm um, right decided the outcome uh we we went through the action moment to moment and had these gripping scenes of of war movie moments but looking back on it we're like well you said that they already had their tanks here and that like basically d decided how it ended interesting um, and we didn't really want that we didn't want to have to create a a board game balancing component within our rpg the way you would if you're playing asl or something where you, you like sure. needed this this setup so I thought, well, let's do the, the usual thing that I do when I'm trying to do mechanics. Let's like let, let's flip a coin for it. Let's do something really simple and see if that solves the problem. And so the engagement role came in where there's a, there was a series of questions about the sort of morale of your units, the disposition of the enemy units, the these kind of questions that touched on the fictional circumstances. Right. But they contributed or or, or uh, took away dice from that role uh, or bonuses in the in the case of Apocalypse World. Uh, and then you rolled and you just got what you got. And it, <laughs> it immediately solved the problem of one player kind of uh, putting their thumb on the scale. Yep. And it also gave you this feeling of this philosophical soldier thing where you're like, well, shit happens, you know? <laughs> like, we can't, you can't always, like, be in the perfect position. Or, oh, cut them with their pants down, boys. And uh, it, it made it feel more like you were this cog in this military machine and you weren't a general like pulling the strings right um you just had to just take your lump sometimes um and that felt really good and it solved it just solved so many problems skipping over what would normally be also in the real world it could be like an hour-long discussion about sure where this was and where that was and how we're moving here and how we're not doing this and um very very detailed which is fun if you're like playing like a kriegspiel uh, and that you're yep. there to do that and it's really engaging and fun but if you're there to have the moment where you're, you know, dragging your buddy out of the foxhole, like that's it's a kind of waste of your time to go through all that. So, uh, yeah. So the engagement role, it fixed the problems in the regiment. And then when it was time in Blades to go, right, 
You know what sucks about the thieves type games? You spend an entire session planning the score right. instead of doing it. So that <laughs> that that role was like, what if we skipped? There is no planning. Rep. You just roll the engagement. The GM says, okay, you're you already are through the skylight. You're lifting the the lid on the precious uh, uh, Fabergé egg thing in the middle of the room, and you notice the tripwire at the last second. <laughs> uh, and now and now we play. Uh, the heist instead of playing the meeting about right. the heist that we had before, uh, so that 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 was another uh, and that and that, that mechanic came later uh, no in kidding. that that development process. But this the technique came in earlier where we were right. kind of already wanting to skip that stuff because uh, we that had come up in our stars that number game as well. It, it, something about it um, that I didn't realize till I spent some time with it john was um the reality is if like if we're if we're trying to mimic some sort of real fictional life whatever the hell we're doing right when we're role playing um you can plan all day long right and you know nobody survives the first punch from the enemy Mm -hmm. and and Mm -hmm. and it almost captures that too right so there's factors that are going to add dice there's factors that are going to take away dice but ultimately, you don't know till you get there yep. what what the hell is going to go down. Yep. And you've already hinted at it. And this was the other one that took me a while to digest. And uh, so concept wise, we're going to drop you into the middle of the action. You you tell us what's the job? How are you going to uh, what's your approach to that job? Are you going to break in? Are you going to try to talk yourself in? So on and so forth. But then we're going to drop you there. Scene. We're going to start the movie. We're going to start the episode. And uh, there's no planning and like conception. I'm like, oh, shit, that's great. That's great. But then I'm like, well, how the hell does that work? And that's where this concept of the flashback mechanic came in, which um, I'll be honest, when I first read it seemed kind of gimmicky to me, but you kind of have to you have to put it on. Uh, to realize it and um, you could describe it better than I could and I would love to I'd love to understand how that came about so the concept again is is that it sounds like you wanted this desire to go let's start playing yeah I always am in that mode I'm always very uh, uh, impatient to get the game going in role playing in general it can be tough people tend to be low energy at the start there's chit chat there's you know Get, getting anything off the ground can be can be tough um and then if the first thing you do once you get going is you have an hour-long meeting about how many windows are on the second floor um it just it better sacks. not a shadow run yeah i played played a lot of shadow run <laughs> yeah um, and had fun with it but yeah it's a problem and yep. um so yeah the engagement role solved that problem but it created it did create that new problem where players were rightfully would say well my character like they they would actually plan stuff. They wouldn't just right. jump into the. I mean, some characters would, but most of, most of them are going to plan things. So uh, there's a, a central kind of resource for player player characters in the game called stress, uh, and you can willingly uh, spend it to sort of boost your your character to do more do more stuff. Uh, you can suffer it um, when you resist bad outcomes and that kind of thing. And so it was this obvious tie-in. Well, okay, we can have Ocean's Eleven style uh, heist planning where it it you see the planning well after the you you see the operation in motion. Um, and not only does it then stay in keeping with getting the game off the ground quickly, it also makes the scoundrels seem so much cooler <laughs> because the things that they planned for act 
are actually happening. They're not just like, well, okay, we'll we'll take some guard uniforms in a bag just in case, and then they never comes up. Right. But if you do it as a flashback, then it's like, wow, these people are so clever. They actually brought guard uniforms in their bag. Uh, and in exchange for that cleverness and that freedom, because uh, you don't want it to just be sort of uh, Calvin Ball, where you're just kind of making yeah. up, well, now I have this, and now I have that. Um, the stress economy really makes that work. So you, you have this limited resource. You need to kind of pick your moment, um, choose the thing that's going to have the biggest impact, uh, and then burn your stress. And then it's up to the group if they want to actually go back in time and, sh and play a scene and have yep. it be this kind of interesting fictional moment. Or if they want to just gloss over it and be like, right, this guy, you bribed him last night in the bar and he winks at you and he, he opens the door and lets you in. Um, so it can be very light touch. It can be like dramatic scenes where we've kidnapped yep. his family or something. You know, you're like, oh, shit, okay. Um, and that lets you set the tone of what kind of heist movie you're doing. Is it dark? Is it lighthearted? That kind of thing. Um, but those, those two things kind of needed to go together. Once you have the engagement role, uh, and you want you don't want to be a hapless GI in World War II. You want to be a cool scoundrel. Right. Um, the flashback mechanic needed to to pop in there. So what's neat about that uh, for me is um, you have you have this the stress resource and it's got several several things pulling at it. There's pressure coming from everywhere, and I like I like your phrasing of you, you need to learn to, to pick the moment. Right. You need to know where to go. So let's now go back to you're working through this game it's being created organically as you go you're bringing two character sheets every week <laughs> um where does where does suddenly someone go flashback was it you was it a player was it something you thought about between sessions like and it sounds like engagement role may have been first the engagement role was definitely in in uh work in the regiment which was being developed kind of at the same time right um it didn't get ported fully over into Blades for a, a little while. Um, but the flashback uh, wasn't a mechanic exactly. Um, we weren't, we weren't um, uh, charging stress for stuff. It, it was the very, first scene of the first session of the first playtest, though. Because um, the very first thing that happened was uh, our buddy Ryan, who's kind of legendary in our local gaming scene as the most reckless uh, look-before-you-leap um, kind of player... Uh, they, the opening scene was this character, the, the Bajo boss, uh, Lamp Black's leader guy type, um, leaning on them and basically saying, look, uh, we, you know it and I know it, you're disposable nobodies, um, I need to take out, there's a, there's an enforcer here from the Unseen, which is a gang in, in Duskfall that's like, one of the worst because they have this magical effect on them where you, you, you can't know who's a member. And, and so the fact that he knows this guy's a member is weird. He shouldn't know that. Uh, and then also the starting PC should definitely not mess with an unseen assassin. That's a terrible idea. And so I'm thinking this gang leader's leaning on him just to see if they'll stand up to him or if the, he's kind of messing with them, kind of. That's what I thought. And Ryan was like, no problem. I'll be right back. And just, like, went over to take the dude out. Like, right in the moment. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone was like, what is happening? <laughs> so I, you know, I look at the fictional situation and I'm like, well, okay, this doesn't trigger a role. Uh, Ryan, your character goes over there. And the next thing you know, um, the guy isn't sitting in the booth. You're sitting in the booth and you have a knife in your heart. Um, and you, your vision fades and you die. 
And he's like, yeah, that sounds about right. Um, <laughs> and he's getting ready to make his new character. And it, it's not a flashback per se, but Dylan's the sorcerer guy. He's at that time, the setup for the scene, he's doing this experiment with these ghosts. Um, and he says, wait, 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 wait. Uh, my character is doing experimentation with ghosts right now. Can I, when, when the unseen killer kills him, can I like sense it somehow? And in that moment, like grab Ryan's character's ghost and swap it. Cause I've already ritually prepared this body for ghost swapping. Um, can I try to do that right now? And we're like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that yeah, sounds cool. That sounds super cool. <laughs> um, make a roll. And, uh, and back then it was almost that, that 50, 50 roll under thing. And, and we're just like, okay, oh, let's see if you live or die, buddy. Um, and he, Dylan made it. And so Ryan's character's body dies. His spirit pops into this new body. And he played that character for a while after that as this sort of possessor ghost. Who's a, who's an NPC in, in blaze now on some of the character sheets. You can take Nerex as your like uh, uh, rival so cool. or whatever. That's Ryan's one of Ryan's characters. And, it wasn't quite the flashback mechanic as it turned into, but it was that kind of clever little bit of a roll the, roll the film back a little right. bit and say, wait, 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 just before that, can I, can I get in and do a thing um, and, and be prepared? And in the modern version of that, it would work just purely on stress, and Dylan wouldn't even need to spend the time telling us ahead of time that he was doing this ritual. He could sort of bring it up in the moment and... Um, <laughs> the the stress cost in Blades is a little bit based on how far-fetched the group thinks something is. <laughs> so saying, actually, I have a richly prepared body ready to accept a spirit, that would probably be a, a high cost. But uh, yeah, it, that, the spirit of that, that, that kind of little bit of a retcon or, or yeah. adjustment um, was in the game from the very, very first thing that happened. Well, and it's and it's it's amazingly cinematic too, mm -hmm. and I don't know if that was happenstance or on or uh, if it was uh, on purpose. But you 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 are mimicking how we watch shows and how we watch movies and how we see things happen. Your uh, Ocean's Eleven yeah. uh, point is a is a perfect example. That was very intentional. Uh, I, yeah, feng, feng Shui is one of my favorite uh, tabletop RPGs, and and uh, was an early playtester on it, and Robin really nailed down this idea of sh shots so, like the initiative system in that game even is sh you spend like shots like camera shots for your character doing stuff and it puts everyone in this great headspace of seeing yeah. things cinematically and after we played that a little bit it it was just so refreshing to change from kind of nit picking based gaming <laughs> drudgery a little bit of like yeah. no but you said you were on by the stairs and like changing from that mode to like the slow, the glass breaks in slow motion and yeah. it's just, it's not that one is like it's inherently superior to the other. It's just that culturally in our group, it, once we switched to seeing things on screen and thinking of the next beat of the film, as opposed to the next five meter, you know, range calculation, it just, it, yep. it opened up a whole space for us to play in that, that was really exciting. Well, and I, and what I like about it too, John, is um, what initially seems restrictive. You very quickly figure out, or I've quick, I should I shouldn't prescribe this. I quickly figured out is you do leave a lot to the players and a lot to the GM, right? So what initially seems very restrictive, the world seems restrictive, the the playbook and something like that. But but you're you're per what I think is purposely vague about like you can in the flashback was perfect. You can just say, hey, that happened, done, or 
we can spend 30 minutes going back in time and let's play it out. And there's three action roles and, yep. and everything. And um, that's a perfect example of you can read the book, but until you play it, I don't think you fully realize just the amount of flexibility um, that's, that's built into it. I really try to include a lot of that in the sort of fairly lengthy guide to running and playing the game. But it is one of those things that when you read it, it might hit you just right and you go, oh, yeah, I totally get it. But usually you have to. And I think the book even says this, too. It says, like, read the book, play the game and then read the book again, because <laughs> then the stuff will make sense <laughs> after, right. you've, after you've seen it. Yep. Um, and I, that's true of all kind of manuals and, and training of various sorts, I think. But um, that that the idea that the group as a whole is very responsible for a lot of stuff is a key, key, key part of Blades. Um, it's not the GM's job to be the, yeah. the the sort of nanny of the group, making sure, no, 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 that's too silly. You can't do that. Oh, no, 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 don't do that. Instead, it's this everyone together is responsible for tone and for, for pacing and all that kind of stuff that usually is just purely on the shoulders of the game master. So before we take a break, one thing I was very curious about because because of the spectrum of, of how you can play Blades and none of it's wrong, right? Do you, and I'm sure you have, go back and watch Twitch, YouTube, listen to podcasts of actual plays as like, this is, this is your kid that they're now playing with. Right. And I can imagine that you have seen it being done in ways that maybe you didn't even imagine. Um, What's that like as a creator to, to kind of let it go and, and have other people do what you did to other games, right? Yeah. Um, to add to it. What is that like? I, I, it's it's the best thing. It's what gets me out of bed in the morning, basically. Really? As a game designer, yeah. It, it's I, I really enjoy the process of creating these, these games. Um, making the art, writing, playtesting them. Um, not so much finishing the production process, but <laughs> everything before that. Um, <laughs> Everything before that. You just want to do the engagement rolling. Yeah, yeah. That last slog is really tough. But um, but really, at the end of the day, that the point is to make a thing. It, it's I use this analogy a lot. It, it's like, uh, in a way, it's kind of like making an instrument for somebody. And it, you can get really obsessive about just how you're staining the, the wood on the cello and just how you're making the scroll work and as a as an artisan you can be super into that but really what you're doing is handing this to someone and then you really want right. to hear them play something on it and yeah i think for me that's it's just so endlessly gratifying to see people do shocking surprising things or just to, just what i expected or whatever but just to have them um use it as a tool for to express themselves uh is is it's just a delight every time so when I bring that up, John, is there something specific you can think of? Is there a memory where you were watching somebody else play this game um, where you just went, whoa? Yeah, uh, it was an early one right after, not right after the Kickstarter, but uh, but fairly close to that. There was this um, college group of, of players here in Washington State that were, that were playing it. And the ritual uh, magic rules in Blades are very... Um, very vague they're very vague they're, they're like yeah. a series of questions and answers you have to have a real strong point of view the group and the gm the player and the gm have to like come together and sort of duel a little bit with like okay <laughs> that that's an effect but it has this cost and do you really want that and it's back and forth and uh one of the one of the 
players in that game, Emily, she came up with this ritual and it was uh, using the ghost field sort of trans-spatially in a way that would open uh, a portal. And we'd done a bunch of stuff like that in our games of like slipping into the ghost field or, or looking at a slice of it that was further back in time or looking at a slice of it that was in the future to see what would right. happen, you know, those all kinds of stuff like that. And she was like, no, 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 I, I want to do this like very physical thing where it opens to a, the, the sort of sphere, Terminator time travel sphere kind of thing, deep, deep, deep in the void sea somewhere. And the void sea just spills out of that portal into wherever I, oh. I cast that sphere <laughs> and it was just such a shocking thing uh, like yeah. yeah like wow of course like <laughs> we've always used it in this way really supernatural spiritual energy thing and she's like no I just want to flood the enemy base with magical void water who knows that like the the, 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 the demons live in so yeah um, yeah and it was like I, I want to say it was only a few months after the Kickstarter had had wrapped up uh, so possibly the very first streamed game, uh, maybe. Um, wow. And so I was I was watching it. You know, now I kind of check in and watch games here and there. But that one, I was like tuning in every week. What are they going to do? <laughs> uh, and especially that particular system was a little bit of like, I don't know. Is it too kind of, mm, should there be more guidelines? Should it be more restrictive? Should it, I don't know. I'm pretty happy with it. It worked for our group. Is it going to work for people? And then she just kind of knocked it out of the park and... That's it, cool. It made me feel like, okay, yeah, it's not going to work for everybody, but yeah, that's 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 perfect. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. So um, now I'll be honest with you, listeners. Um, I literally could sit here for eight hours with John and talk about mechanics, but there is one last one I want to bring up before we break, and that is the concept of clocks, which, not to be a broken record, the first time I read it, I was like, big deal, right? And the idea is, is that you take a circle, you break it into segments. It could be four segments, it could be eight segments, it could be six segments, and you use that to mark progress. And it could be progress that the players are working towards. It could be progress working against the players. Um, but it's a very simple idea and I read it. I went, okay, whatever. Then I saw it and then I saw what it did. Um, so where does clocks come from? Uh, they've been around in various forms in lots of RPGs. Uh, I, I've tried to kind of pinpoint exactly where I first saw them. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Uh, there's, um, Oh, God, it just left my brain. Uh, Tom Moldvay's uh, great Prohibition-era gangsters uh, game that came out in the 80s. Gang- is that called? Is that Gangbusters? I think that's Gangbusters. Um, great sandbox game. Uh, some of the original great sandbox RPG writing um, to the point where the game says, maybe one of you is a Prohibition agent, and one of you owns a still, and one of you is an FBI guy, and one of you is a... And just, like, all the players just, like, fight each other, and it's complete <laughs> PvP, and it's it's shocking. That, that game is written in a really cool way. But there's an idea in there. It's not called clocks or, or progress bars or anything like that. But there's an idea in there for the GM to um, kind of... To, to, to manage all that mayhem and crossing interests and stuff to... Uh, assign these kind of um i guess it's sort of a milestone idea ish right um so you're you're able to see like okay you know you they got those three they took over those three uh gin joints so like now they have a hold on the thing instead of always being this nebulous like is it how we did we do it um and then fast forward all the way to the 90s with fudge and then fate that that fred hicks and rob wrote um that has uh sort of these progress tracks 
um, for okay. various states of characters. Uh, and then in Apocalypse World, Vincent um, made them into clocks, the, the little circle with the, the pie pieces. Um, and those were used, uh, one for the uh, PC's hit points, which is kind of a fun thing because you midnight is dead. And so you kind of have this idea like, oh, I'm at nine o'clock. That's bad. Um, <laughs> that's kind of a fun way to do that. Uh, but also the, for tracking your sort of enemy factions in the apocalypse world, the bullet farm uh, is advancing their little, little, little their plans. Um, and the water keepers have their clock that's managing and they're all, because it's Apocalypse World, they're all countdowns to dooms of various sorts. Uh, right. And the players can't, or maybe they can, uh, manage all of the ways the world is falling apart around them. Uh, but it's pretty much a GM-facing tool to manage your notes. So when you show up next week, you look at it and you go, oh, right, they only have one tick left before all the water uh, goes away. Yeah. Um, and... I had played a whole, whole lot of Apocalypse World. Uh, <laughs> it's the game I played the most sessions of. It's just so many um, and run. And, and so as a GM, I had used clocks so much and loved it. And I forget what I played. I played in a game as a player and I had felt this, this lack of them. I was kind of like, oh, I really want to be able to tick the clock to actually get make progress towards the thing i'm trying to do you know when yeah. i've made four rolls when do i actually get the thing i, I don't know i just have to yep. like hope that the gm will will deliver it uh so having them as a player facing resource uh came kind of out of some frustration as a player and also um my my tendency as a gm to take what's supposed to be gm facing and let the players see it yeah um, as a way of providing a kind of dramatic irony or foreshadowing mm-hmm. um, instead of keeping stuff behind my screen, I might, I might leave my sheet down on the table face up and they can see there's only one tick left on the water thing. And I, maybe I don't mention it, but I, <laughs> so uh, yeah, in our, in our blades play testing, that became a thing where I had a stack of index cards and you'd quickly draw a circle, fill in some of it and put it out. And sometimes that was unlabeled. <laughs> after after someone missed a roll or something They're like what's that clock for like uh, you'll find out i don't know it's uh, so another again it's that meta channel idea where we're like yeah you know sending each other messages as people well and um, it gives you and this is what i noticed john is it gives you another place to put consequences yes which i think was really neat that's so, the most important part yeah and and, and so i talk about the narrative dice system which was my first exposure to uh you know, failing with, you know, failing with with progress and, and progressing with failures and, and that idea of non-target number stuff. And uh, what I realized in watching people play Blades is it, it, it's one more thing to use for that concept of you succeeded, but yeah. you failed, but and it, it's absolutely fascinating. Absolutely I feel like fascinating. it's really important in a game. Uh, well, I mean, just in a video game sense, um, Everybody hates insta-fail stealth levels. Yep. Uh, they suck, and you have to start over at the beginning, and everybody hates it. But if you play uh, Metal Gear or Splinter Cell or something where when you, so quote-unquote, fail a stealth check, instead of failing the missions, somebody goes, did you hear that? And then they, you hear them walking over to where you are. Or then they, then they the, the flashlight turns, and they're like, oh, wait, I see somebody. And then finally, there's an alarm or something, or there's an escalation, right. or reinforcements get called, or whatever. Um, and those are all failures in a way, but they're not that horrible. Mission over, start at the beginning. 
so for games, especially in a blade sense, but in, in a lot of games, there's situations where players are going to be doing something where there's these kind of escalation of of consequences that are going to happen later, and um, having having a clock to tick that says reinforcements yeah. arrive, it it gives you that tool as a GM instead of it a pass fail roll. You can you can say, okay, you know that was it. That was not a great roll, so I'm going to tick here. Two more of those, well, and the reinforcements show up. And it's funny, too, because so often as a GM, you can feel like um, in order for me to create tension, in order for me to create drama, I need to hide things from my players. Mm -hmm. I need things to be secrets. And what I love is that you're saying, no, this this is going to be transparent. And guess what? It's going to create more tension, believe it or not. You think it won't, but it will. Watch. Yeah. And your example of putting the clock out there going, yeah, I might not label this one, but yeah, you tick two of them. I tick, tick two of what? Yeah. <laughs> What's going on? It, it, it's absolutely fascinating there, there's a component of daring too uh where you can do things like the players talk to some they meet with a boss or something and he they, they have a conversation and but they're like okay fine and they leave and then you put a clock down that says uh uh they see through his lies it smells your bullshit <laughs> and and they're like wait he was lying to us You're like uh it seemed fine to you um but here's a progress clock do you want to like find out if anything he just told you is true do you trust him do you well, maybe he wasn't lying i don't know um you 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 seemed to be trusting him so i'm putting out this clock here and they can go wait wait, wait whoa, 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 whoa. No, no 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 nobody lies to us uh, we're gonna get to the bottom of this or, or the other side of it, right? So you have you have your face character who is really good at deceiving people, right? So he, that, and that's his that's his or hers go to. They go and I'm going to lie to him, and I've got such a high you know lie skill that I get away with it every time. We put a clock up there, which is uh, you know eventually they're going to catch on, <laughs> and now we're going to tick it twice because you rolled a four instead of a six, and it, it's it's fascinating, John, absolutely fascinating. So guys, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back from this break, we're going to talk about um, a different way that John has unleashed and seen um, his ideas used in different ways. We're going to talk about how Blades has been hacked, and I'm going to pick his brain because when we're recording this, I'm two days away from my first session one of running Blades, and I'm scared and I need some advice, so we'll be right back. Hi, my name is Noah Suderman, and my dad is a Patreon supporter of Third Floor Wars. I listen to Tabletop Talk because of the hard work and effort that Craig Shipman puts into every podcast so that his viewers can become better Malfoy players. What is it worth to you to get this podcast on a weekly basis? Is it worth a dollar a month? $5 a month? $20 a month? If you'd like to help support the work that we're doing here on Third Floor Wars, please go by our Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash thirdfloorwars. There you can pledge at any level, any dollar amount. Whatever you give us will help us put out quality content on a regular basis and hopefully make tabletop gaming a little bit better for you every week. Time for a special shout out to our newest patrons. Uh, I want to thank Eloy, Robo Rotten, Jacob Suderman, Joshua Hatch, Donald Kroger, John Fox, David Gadea, Anthony Nguyen, and Alexander Moritzen. Because of you and the hundred other plus uh, patrons, I'm able to put out quality content on a regular basis. I appreciate your support. So I, I know what the word hack means. Um, 
and this again is the Rumpelstiltskin thing. Uh, the first time I ever heard that term referenced for role-playing games was with Blades. And uh, I heard I heard the term thrown out there saying, hey, this is a great hack of Blades. I'm like, I know what those words mean, just not put together that way. I don't know <laughs> what that means. Um, and I explored it, and I, I discovered it was an integral part of the Kickstarter uh, as well. Um, so uh, I'll let you describe it. When someone says, uh, this is a hack of Blades, what does that mean? Um, yeah, it. so in general, um, ha- hacking has always been part of like the, the role-playing scene i think from the very beginning you could argue that the early first rpgs are are hacks of war games uh yep and it the the idea is just taking uh, rather than starting from a kind of blank uh page uh for for a game project you take something that's already existing and you modify bits of it to suit the thing you're trying to do and that might be extremely simple types of things like a lot of people uh in the in the sort of broader um uh, D&D, Pathfinder, uh, Star Wars, Star Trek, um, the, the sort of those bigger RPG spaces. You'll see though all the time on their blogs and stuff. They're, they're uh, running Star Trek with D&D or they're running fantasy with Star Trek or whatever. Yep. They, they, they have a system that they love and they realize, oh, we can just sort of change the names of what the weapons are and we can change the names of, of uh, the different classes and things and we can have this new uh, experience with something that we're already familiar with. And that has always been around. Um, homebrewing, I would say, is, is, is hacking. And I also think it's game design, um, just in general. Um, so what you're talking about, the, the sort of Blades in the Dark hacks, um, under this umbrella that's branded and named, we call it Forged in the Dark, Right. Uh, and there's a system reference document that people can pull all the mechanics from and p- put in their own games and it's all Creative Commons licensed and is a sort of ecosystem of stuff. That is a direct consequence of uh, Apocalypse World and right. and when Vincent was in the early playtesting stages, um, I forget how our group came into it. I think we were maybe, we were very early in as playtesters. Um, I think Vincent had been running it for a little while in his home group. And the very first session that I ran with Apocalypse World, I hacked it uh, to be in this sort of City of Lost Children kind of setting. Um, so right away... You're a creepy guy, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I like that kind of stuff. Um, so right away I was changing and stuff. And I, I think a lot of other people were too. And Vincent saw that was going to be a thing. So he launched the Apocalypse World forums along, right alongside the game coming out and explicitly encouraged people to start making the, the science fiction version, the, you know, whatever. And there was a huge active community on his forum for a long time, and a bunch of cool games came out of that. Uh, even though it wasn't formalized quite the same way, Vincent right. doesn't have a license and stuff, he just sort of asks permission and he says yes every time. So it's kind of a <laughs> very casual, but... Yeah. Um, there were so many cool games that came out of that and monster hearts and dungeon world and eat like monster of the week. Now I get mainly because the McElroy brothers uh, have this giant podcast and they play monster of the week. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's become su- super popular and it's a good game. Um, but now there are people I, I was working with this young designer who's doing a, a sort of master's level um uh, and they're they're producing role playing games as, for their master's work at, at their at their university, which is amazing to think about. That is amazing, isn't it? Um, 
but we're talking about Apocalypse World stuff, and I'm referencing this and referencing that. And they're like, I don't know. I don't I don't know if I've seen that. Uh, and I'm like, well, it's in Apocalypse World. They're like, oh, no, no, no. I've only, Monster of the Week's the only thing I know. Like, that's that's, that's the starting it. point for, for right? their understanding is this, what I consider the sort of late, later stage hack of Apocalypse World yeah. is now kind of the, the new baseline uh, that people are designing from. So that whole... That whole thing uh, excites me a lot, and it, it happened with my games back on my blog, my little two-pagers and stuff. Um, people made... I have a game called Lady Blackbird, uh, and there's like a hundred packs of that or something. Um, so I knew that that was going to be a thing um, yep. during the development of Blades. Several of the playtesters, um, Strush and John LL, who created this company called Offguard Games, during the playtesting of Blades, they were writing Scum and Villainy the Star Wars-esque, Cowboy Bebop-esque adaptation yeah. um, alongside me. And it, it came out a one year to the day from the day that Evil Hat published Blades because they had already like had this huge running start. And then exactly one year after that, they published Band of Blades, the, the Black Company military um, fantasy uh, hack. And uh, so that it, it wasn't just like, people are going to hack this. It was like, a, a, pr- a publication line was already <laughs> kind of in place. Amazing. And because of that, the community, the Blades in the Dark Discord especially, um, has this huge community of really dedicated mentors and hackers and people that help each other uh, do work. And I don't know, there's just dozens and dozens. There's like 50 some um, Blades hacks out there right <laughs> now. And uh, it, it's been really cool to see how that, the skeleton of what Blades has. Uh, can, is adaptable across these various um, various uh, settings and situations. Yep. And at first, everything cleaves very closely to its to its bones, um, which is that kind of get to the action quickly, uh, player centric, sandboxy play to find out what happens, open ended kind of thing. Right. But then Band of Blades comes along. And it's like no, there's a hex map. You play this many sessions, or 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 until you die. Uh, it's a slow march of running away from this undead army that you can't defeat. It's very regimented. It's very like, it's not sandboxy. I mean, it is in a way, but it's mission oriented. You do this. It's different. Yeah. It's yeah. It's very different. And and other hacks have come along. Um, girl by Moonlight, which is going into production now. It's like a magical girl game, like Sailor Moon style. Um, and everything is flipped on its head. You're your school scenes and your normal life scenes all generate stress for you. And then kicking ass as a superhero is how you bleed <laughs> off your, your stress. Uh, so oh, that's so cool. It's so good. It's just amazing. Um, and there's, there are a lot of cool mechanics in girl by moonlight, but that's, yeah, that's just a way of thinking about a hack that unlocks all these different opportunities and ideas. And so um, I, I knew that structure would support, a lot of action adventure fiction the way that apocalypse world does too right um and it, the choosing between the two is really a question of like how um kind of group dynamic dependent do i want stuff to be apocalypse world yeah. you can you can legislate a little bit more to the group by the, the way you write, write your moves and the way that you uh constrain outcomes and things and in blades it's yep. more like hey everybody's got to get on the same page and work together <laughs> and um if that's what you're feeling then it generally is a good way to 
Well, and you codify it too, because I mean, you call it the conversation, mm-hmm. um, and that's something that comes up throughout the whole thing. Um, and this is me being a neophyte. Is that concept of the conversation being codified that way something that was new to Blades, or is that something you pulled from? I expound on it in a way, uh, in a in a meatier way, I would say, because a lot of parts of Blades are very dependent. Every time you make an action roll, I would say it's it's very dependent on. A bit of a back and forth. Um, yep. But uh, the phrase comes from, from Apocalypse World. Um, okay. Vin- Vincent wrote in the text. I'll never forget it. It was early on when we were first playtesting, and I was flipping through the, the document, and there's a line where he just says, so, you know, role-playing is a conversation, right? <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> and, and he doesn't really... He sort of expounds on it a little bit, but not a yeah. lot. And it just was burning into my mind. Like, of course it is. Like... I say something and you say something back and you listen to me and I listen to you. And yeah, um, there's a bit in the combat section where of apocalypse world where he says, you know, and it, it, there's no initiative and stuff, but it's a conversation where in a conversation you take turns, but it's not like taking turns right in a board game sense, but you do. I say this and you respond and I respond to you and da da da. Um, and those are kind of naturally the beats of, a conversation and they're also kind of the beats of a fight uh i think it's uh is it sammo hung or yim Bu or, or or somebody uh some great hong kong cinema legend uh <laughs> talk, talking about how fights they choreograph a fight scene like a yep. conversation um, yep. and so all of that stuff crystallized um and was a big discussion point in the sort of game design theory circles that i was traveling in at the time and um the things that were used to be on forums and they kind of migrated to G plus and then, and then G plus died sadly. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, everyone was really interested in the, the that, that uh, combination of what we say as real people to each other sitting at a yep. table and then how during that we are referencing stuff that isn't here with us. We're referencing stuff that's in our imagination and that that sort of triangle of the two of us and then that imaginary piece how do how do we how do we use that to make stuff happen uh, well and and it really it, it reinforces something that i always knew as a player and as a game master that that I, and this was for me, it was instinctual and not because I'm smart, just because it's how I like to play. I, I never did the GM versus player thing, right? It was always like, come over to my house. Let's tell a great freaking story. And 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 it, it, it like I said, it codifies that, right? And it's and it's interesting. It's based off of that. I um I just booked Vince and Meg to come on the show today. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, and awesome. you're making me even more and more excited uh, <laughs> to talk to them. That's fantastic. Um, That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm super excited. All right. So <laughs> last bit, and then we've got to talk about the, uh, the new and shiny. Um, <laughs> in two days, I'm going to run my first session of blades, right? I've done a session zero people. Um, I've gotten feedback on it already, but uh, I'm excited and nervous. Um, John, you've gotten a sense of how much I know and probably how much I don't know about your game. Um, for me, and more importantly, for people listening that are getting excited listening to this, what are, what's some advice um, going into it, both for me and maybe for my players? Uh, on the internet, I am always kind of a dirt jerk about this, and I say, um, I wrote a whole book about that, so go and read that. Uh, <laughs> go and read that. Um, <laughs> all right we're gonna go ahead and take a break uh, 
<laughs> but you've been very gracious to have me here to talk about it, so I won't I won't take use that answer. Um, <laughs> I think. Uh, and, and just incidentally, before you go, John, he's not making a joke, guys. And this is something that I loved in the book. Like there is a chapter for advice for the GM where John is like sitting down with you as the GM is saying, you need to read this. And, and this is this. These are things you need to think about. And then he does the same thing for the players, which is fantastic. So I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But like, I don't think people realize that you literally did this. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think it's important. Um, it's not it's not always necessary, uh, depending on the audience. And depending on the people's backgrounds and what they've played before and stuff. But um, I, I wanted to try to get as much of that out as I could. And um, there's only there's an amount I can embed in the systems. So if you just use the systems, you're going to you're going to kind of get certain types of play anyway. Yeah. Uh, but I also wanted to kind of pull back the curtain a little bit and be like, this is why this is this way. And this is how you should try to use this. Um, but I would say for any kind of like starting a new thing with a new group of people, um, it's always a little bit nerve wracking, um, no matter how many times you've done it. And one thing I always, I, I, this happens to me every, this happened with monster of the week, uh, this last week when I ran it, um, going into it, I'm just like, okay, do I have all my ducks in a row? Did I read the thing? Do I know this? Do yeah. I know that? Um, and afterwards I remember it and this happens every time I go, Oh, right. There's four people. It's not me. It's not, I'm, I'm not point. showing up to like, do put on a performance for these people yeah everyone at the end it felt effortless at the end of the night we're all high-fiving we had a great time session's over and i never i didn't sweat for one second because all those people were there to support the thing we were right. doing um if you common goal exactly if you don't have yeah. that that's a, it's that's a different question like how to how to set up a that's game a group problem. with a group of people that yeah. are going to do that work is is its own tricky thing and and that has its own solutions and stuff too yeah um, but if you do have a group that's there to do the thing together um very often that like pre-game jitters thing where like oh i don't want to i don't want to mess it up you realize i'm one i'm one quarter of this equation <laughs> and so uh it's so easy to forget so yeah. easy to forget yeah it really is um yep. and, and i think it's it's okay to err on that side to feel like i need to be prepared and I, i'm going to be responsible and learn this stuff and be ready to explain things that's all good uh to 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 do but the stress of it uh you know i think it's okay to let that go a little just be like it's fine we're all gonna do it together we're gonna do the little setup you're gonna answer those crew questions and about halfway through them answering the crew questions you're gonna be like i know exactly what's mm -hmm. going on here they, they these are their enemies these are their friends and those wheels are going to start turning, and then one of the players is going to be like, well, wait a minute, what if they don't know that there are enemies? Can we have it? And then, and you're just going to head off down that road, um, and everything will be fine. Uh, you won't, yeah. Yeah, you, it, it's kind of neat. Um, as I've been preparing to run this, I've been going through the rules and trying to, you know, remember this, remember that, and how this, because mechanically, this is a very different game for me. Um, but I do like the fact that what I'm not doing is figuring out the branching trees i'm not <laughs> figuring out like okay i know mm -hmm. where i'm going to start them but what if they go this way well i got to be ready for that and i've got to get this you know and stuff you like you force me john to to <laughs> not be able to do that right I'm glad. It, it, like I'm glad. mechanically it's built in there and, yeah. and it, that's that's fascinating for me so guys we're gonna go ahead i was just gonna say system wise give yourself permission to i, I think i say this in the text but um if you get into that situation where you're like, oh, no, this is I don't remember exactly what is that either give yourself permission to do Luke Crane, uh, the game designer who wrote Burning Wheel and, and Torchbearer and Mouse Guard. Um, 
I, I played with him a lot, uh, and he does this great thing when, when no one knows rule, he goes, oh, we get to look up a rule. Uh, like who, who has a book, uh, like who can find it first? And it, everyone's like, yay. And it changes the whole dynamic from like, oh no, I have to look up a rule. This sucks. So yeah. give yourself permission to do that, but also to just gloss over it and be like, I don't know. Uh, let's just make a roll for that. And it, okay. Got a five. Great. Here's what happens. We'll look right. up the rule later. It's fine. Yep. Um, Blades has a bunch of interconnected stuff and can feel like this like clockwork and you have to know all every part but it all collapses down to roll a bunch of d6s pick the highest single die so if whenever yep. you need to do that just do that and don't worry about uh, the the details excellent excellent all right guys we're gonna take a quick break and when we come back we're gonna talk about john's new baby we'll be right back Howdy friends, Greg here. Nothing makes Malifaux easier than having the right tools. Here at the third floor, we love all the licensed Malifaux goodies from Custom Meeple. Not only are they helping support this podcast, they sell custom-made weird licensed tokens and terrain. They sell it all. Crew boxes, terrain, markers, tokens, and even a 3x3 full Malifaux board. Custom Meeple sells a complete M3E token set covering every marker and token you need to play. Custom Meeple are the source for the official accessories for Malifaux. Everything is designed by hand and authorized by Weird Games. Check them out at custommeeple.com, that's with one M, or follow the link in the show notes. Up your Malifaux game and be sure to tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. If you use the promo code third floor friend, all one word, T-H-I-R-D-F-L-O-O-R-F-R-I-E-N-D, you'll get a 5% discount and help support the podcast. It's valid on everything except retail products and playmats. So during the break, I had to go go with John about how to pronounce this. <laughs> and uh, it's a Greek word. It's uh, agon is how he pronounces it. Um, and it's the newest thing that uh, we've gotten from Mr. Harper. Um, and... Uh, we're going to delve into it. Um, I've, I've read it, um, uh, have not played it or uh, like literally just read it once. Um, and there's, there's sense of blades of the dark in there. Um, so, uh, let's start off with just a simple elevator pitch. Um, if someone says, what is this game? What do you, what do you say? Uh, Agon is a game about legendary heroes in a mythic age that are lost among strange islands and uh, have to uh, curry the favor of the capricious gods to find their way back home again. Which which has some roots, right? Yeah, may, it may, that, that setup may sound familiar uh, to people who uh, like like the beginning of fiction. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's an old it's an oldie but a goodie. Uh, so so where does where did this start? Like, at what point did you go? Huh. So this is the second edition. Uh, of the game, um, which was just published, uh, the Kickstarter was last year, and the, the books came out uh, this summer. Um, there was a little bit of delay in the production for, you know, some reason, uh, some <laughs> things happening in the world. Um, but uh, the first edition was in 2006, um, and oh, I didn't realize it was that old. Yeah, yeah, it, it it was another one of those games where I I had an idea, I brought it to the game group, we played it, uh, everyone had a last um and instead of it being weekly like i think we played it like three times that week so i went home and changed it and we played and it was this rapid iteration uh and in about seven from seven weeks from that night 
uh, I was at Gen Con selling the books at, at the Forge booth, and um, wow. it, it was this really tight thing that just came together. And it was an idea of taking the kind of one-upsmanship uh, dickishness of the heroes in the Iliad that are just constantly squabbling over over the the, the loot from the dead people there that they've, <laughs> they've found. They've found. Um, take that idea of, of heroes first among equals, like striving together to do a thing, but kind of squabbling amongst themselves. Try to make a game that was very PvP uh, focused and had a kind of actual kind of game system that the players could use to like f- battle each other for glory. Sure. Um, so it came together and it was fun and um, it, it was a hit uh, at the at the booth that year. I ran like 20 demos or something and um, a group started like a yearly like competition at Gen Con. They had a trophy and stuff. And um, <laughs> I think I think they might still do it. I think the last like real Gen Con they actually did still have that going. But um, it was an experiment. It was just kind of let's can we do something really different? Let's have a right. PvP focused RPG. Will that be fun to do? Uh, and Robin Laws uh, published a game called Rune um, around the same time that was based on the video game Viking video game with very similar idea like. Uh, player versus player you have like a score sheet um and so it was in the air kind of i think but uh i moved on from that and it was it was always been available for sale and um had its uh, had its fans but um as a designer that's kind of a long time ago uh, yeah 2006 so after blades i was talking with uh, with the people at evil hat and my dear, dear friend Sean Nittner is is the director of projects there, and they were like, "Well, let's do. Do you want to do another project together? Let's publish something new." Um, and I'm like, "Yeah, I've got a bunch of irons in the fire right now, but nothing is ready to go." And and Fred's like, "I always really liked Agon. Let's we could do a second edition. We'll get someone else to like clean it up and write a new version, and you don't have to be involved really. And we'll just we just want to publish you know something on your catalog. Oh, great." So, long story short, I won't get into all the details there. Um, it was fine, but ultimately what happened was that cleaned up version of the game was not what we wanted at all. Oh, uh, no kidding. And so, it, well, just just because it was Sean and I, we, we were playtesting it together. Right. And he's run a bunch of it, uh, and so he was a perfect candidate to, um, to t- try it out, and I was playing in the game. And our, the first island we did took three sessions to finish, and we were just looked at each other and we're like, this is not where we are anymore as players. Like we, I, this doesn't excite me. Um, why was that John? It was too procedural, too caught up in the nitty gritty moment to moment action of, of the game. And that's, that stuff was there to facilitate the type of competition that the game wanted. Right. But the square by square combat, uh, moment to moment, attack roll damage stuff yeah um i've had a lot of fun with that kind of thing in the past but as a gamer now i just kind of want to get on with it and yep. and do the next thing and have an exciting scene and actually finish a a, a, a story or a moment in an evening and you know it, it's hard to schedule stuff now and you're just yeah. just older and just i'm in a different place yeah so a fixed version of that first game just wasn't it, it it would have been a perfectly good product to make, and people would have liked it, I think. But yep. Sean and I were not passionate about that thing. So we made the hard decision that we're going to just make something new, something that feels more like exactly what we want right now today. 
wow. as gamers. And Sean came on board as the co-author, uh, and we spent uh, a couple years um, banging it out and turning it into the thing we really wanted. And it, we got it to that point, like something you can play as a one-shot, not even a right, not even a one-shot, like an, an an island. Each Agon session is an island that you visit, sort of an adventure location. You could think of it as. Yeah, and the heroes are there because the gods have sent them for some mysterious reason that they may or may not tell you. Uh, there's strife. There's a monster. There's people suffering or whatever, and the heroes resolve the situation, however they resolve it, and then move on again into the mist, uh, trying to find their way um, back home using the favor of the gods as a kind of uh, guide in the constellations of the stars to navigate. <laughs> so we wanted like we want this punchy thing. You do an island, and that's this whole session. And now, what after we played a bit, we can do an island in like two hours. Uh, Amazing. So it 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 starts to suit our lives even more now. Like yeah. I can have a game night that's only two hours long. Like wow, that's cool. Uh, and so that started to marry with the themes of these ancient stories and the simplicity, the accessibility of them. Um, yeah. And that led us to think, well, maybe this is a good game for beginners, especially beginner GMs. Maybe. We can write something that's less intimidating, a book that's really slim and not a huge chore to read, and a game that has very simple mechanics that you you roll once and you're you're done. And so it all kind of started to shift away from this <laughs> really detailed, nitty gritty PvP thing that it was before to this kind of breezy, quick, light experience that you could knock out real fast and um, maybe as a as a a place to bring in new gamers to something that's less intimidating and also very familiar as a as a baseline um right it's hard to mess it up you don't need to know a bunch of lore about the setting you don't need to know a bunch of details about uh characters and stuff you can just jump in and and play so boy that that must have been a crazy moment where you just said you know what no this is this is (laughs) this is this this thing is baked (laughs) and it doesn't taste good um well it was weird because it was good um that version of the game was was quite good (laughs) Uh, but it just wasn't the flavor you wanted. I couldn't, I wasn't excited to, to right. do it. Um, it felt like punting kind of like, this yeah. is, fi- this is fine. People will like this, yeah. but yeah. I wanted, I, I don't know. I wanted to be excited. So the next morning, so you make that freaking decision, yeah. right? You, you wake up the next morning and what's it, what does that start <laughs> off with? Like, do you, what do you throw out? What do you say? This is sacred. I, this I want to keep, or I like this idea, but not how it's executed. Like, how do you start that process? The first part is, Hey, evil hat, you know how you had a publishing schedule figured out? Um, <laughs> that's not happening. Uh, don't, don't forget. I sell a lot of plates. Yeah. <laughs> But no, they were, I mean, they're, they're fantastic partners and um, they were super 100% supportive and were like, yeah, wow. yeah, no, just go, just go do what it, whatever you got to do. Uh, so that was great. Um, that, yeah, was, that was no step kidding. one. <laughs> no because kidding. I mean, ultimately, I guess if, if Fred, I mean, this is, this is Fred's business. Like if, if he had said, no, we're going to publish the revised one. That's, we got to, we got to pay the bills here. I, yeah. I probably would have said, yeah, okay, you, you're right. You know, um. So, Fred, if you're listening, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know, we have a really good uh, equitable partnership there. um, Right. But I I would have been sympathetic if it if it was a a need or something. We we could have had a different conversation. But but that's not what happened. He he was like, yeah, cool. Let's let's go. Um, Wow. So that was that was great. And then I bet it was. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Then it was a process of 
well, initially, Sean was still kind of like in this sort of uh, director role uh, at that point. He he had gone through the painful process for him of, of running the, this game and was like, oh, God, there's just so much to track. And, uh, you know, so he was also kind of the impetus there. But at, at the beginning, it was just on me. Like, OK, if you're not going to do this version now, like make something else, John, like figure it out. <laughs> so I took the the typical approach uh, that I that I try to do for most things and like uh, let's strip it way back to some kind of really, really pared down basic thing that has some flavor and, and feel to it. Make a cool looking character sheet and see if this agon experience can happen given way, way fewer bits. And right. uh, and that, that again, went back into that iterative process. And we pretty much jumped right back into it um, with Sean and, and those early playtesters. Um, we were very fortunate that various factors resulted in him like being in Seattle several times in a row uh, for other reasons, and so we were able to like get groups together in in real life and play. And we had a whole weekend yeah. where we played for like three days straight, and wow, um, it really helped that that process. And we also brought on some of the early playtesters um, were either extremely knowledgeable kind of um, playtesting people. Uh, user experience people or were very very uh, deeply knowledgeable about the sort of poetry uh, origin stories of of yeah. the odyssey and the iliad and what yep. they meant and why they were written the way they were and um are is this thing honoring that or is it fighting against it or those type of considerations were we had sort of experts in both um i don't know this seems too confusing you're overwhelming me with, yeah. with data it, gamer nerd uh and we also had like ah that's not really how they thought about that do, you, do we need to have something more thematic here um, interesting and so given that organization of people sean being a great designer and sort of project manager me as a game designer and graphic artist ux person yeah. thematic person sitting at a table debriefing um <laughs> it just it took things it accelerated the re re uh, master. Um, it, it probably would have taken a lot longer to get somewhere uh, from where we were. And right a, right away during those early playtests, we got to something that looks a lot like the current game. Got it. But it had all kinds of cruft and and troublesome systems and numbers that yep. were wrong and all those things you have to play to kind of grind off. Um, so it took, it took a long time, a year or so after that through play tests. Um, and until the, the, we, I put on a local con here in Seattle called go play Northwest. And there was a, a infamous evening where Sean had run the game and I came in and was like, so how did it go? And everyone kind of was like, uh, not, not well. Oh, uh, and, and this was after i don't know 10 months or something and we were we were feeling really good about it and so we had this like four hour conversation till three in the morning with everybody like breaking it all down and exactly where no it was kidding. failing and um it didn't take very many changes it was just these little procedural things that were making stuff hard and uh we ironed them out and it it it, it was a i don't know i feel like that whole process was this magical um hmm. Uh, a very serendipitous set of people that happened yeah. to to 
come into contact with the game before it was published that had the exact right uh, sort of point of view on what was being done to steer the ship back where it needed to go. What's what's fascinating hearing this, John, is that as how similar your story about this is to what I've heard miniature game designers talk to me about, mm. which is they have orig an original vision and uh, the feel that they want, right? The sense of, I, I, I know how I want this to feel when mm -hmm. it's happening. And then they wander and a layer gets put in here and a, and a piece of tape gets put there. <laughs> yep. And all of a sudden they look back and go, well, what the hell happened? And, and I'm fascinated how different people gut check themselves through that. So did you find that, was that your big gut check where you go, well, boy, we, we, we wandered or, uh, like what happened? How did you get there to where you walked into that room and you realized that there was a, there was a bunch of burrs that needed to be sanded. That was the result of an, a complete overhaul essentially before the con. Um, we, we had a certain version of the game up to that point and I wasn't loving it yet. And yeah, there were things about it that I didn't like. And I was like, I'm just going to change I'm going to touch everything. I'm going to do the worst playtest thing you can do, right? You should change one thing and see how it could. I, I, I just implemented like 10, 10 different changes uh, all at once. And, and, and it, so it just crashed completely. No uh, kidding. But it, it did. That in, when you're talking about that feel and what we wanted, um, every, it was a good test because everything that the players were saying like I didn't like like this this thing didn't work um, mm -hmm. is that's fine feedback like that's that's good enough as from a playtester um, and usually if you know I, I forget who said this but like if someone tells you uh, how it felt to use the mechanic you should always believe them and it, when they tell you how to fix it you should never believe them um, <laughs> <laughs> that is so true. <laughs> uh, and that, oh, I'm going to use that, John. That's good. <laughs> I forget. I heard that from Luke Crane. I don't know. I don't know if he coined that, but um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's very handy. But in this particular case, they did. They they would still say like, right. if, if it worked like this, I mean, I think that'd be better. And that was the previous way. It, that that's how it had worked before. This, Interesting. This overhaul, and that didn't happen in all cases. But there were several right. of those where I was like, yeah, okay, I we need to trust. We need to trust it and trust what's there, and not uh, overdo it and not overwhelm, and real and pull it, pull it, pull it, pull it. And so after that, we we were still in the same vector for like feel and how we wanted. We want short sessions, we want punchy conflicts. Yeah. All our goals were the same, but we sort of were like, well, let's okay. I think it's okay. Let's see how how much we can take off now. How many things we can interesting we can pull off and. The game got simpler and simpler and simpler until it went up to production. We were in the final days. We were just like minimizing and minimizing instead of adding stuff. Yeah. 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 So here's what's interesting as I hear this, John, is all right. There's <laughs> you have the game before the con and, and it just uh, something's wrong, right? Something's off. And you say, you know, F it. I'm going to just dive in. I'm going to change seven, 10, 15 things and I'm going to throw it out there. But but. That was an honest feeling you had before the con, like something's off, right? Yeah, yeah. And then we fast forward to afterwards, and there's, you're, you're telling me that a lot of things got pulled back, right? Yeah. Like, so when you skip the middle, 
what was different between the moment before the con and when you were finally happy with it? What made the feel work? The main thing, it's the mechanic I think that people talk about the most now uh, who've played the game. Um, and it seems so essential. It's it's hard to believe that it didn't just work this way from the very beginning. <laughs> yeah. Um, in Agon, you... Uh, everything asterisk almost everything is a one role conflict you right you, there's a situation arises um uh you've offended the court but by overstepping your bounds as visitors you get exiled from the island and you the heroes go no 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 hang on let's have a contest of arts and oration i will ply them with honeyed words uh and you know uh, uh appeal to the gods or to tradition or whatever uh, and we go okay fine it's a contest. All the heroes can participate. But stakes are, like, you stay or you're exiled. Like, that's it. It's just one role. It's all decided. Um, and that we really wanted that. We wanted this high-stakes moments where... Ev because everything in Agon is for glory. You have, have an actual glory score card. I know you know this because you've read it. But you have a you have glory score tracker on your character sheet. And as your glory increases, the value of the die that's associated with your character's name gets bigger and bigger. So your name carries more weight in your contest yep. because of your glory. And so the harder, the higher the, the target number essentially in a contest, the more glory it's worth. So we want these, we don't want to roll for stuff to just do a thing to like pick a lock or whatever, because that's not glorious. Uh, we want, we want each conflict to be the story of the thing, which is why your character's getting the glory. The time you mm -hmm. stood up to tradition on the Isle of Nemos and even the king admitted his fault or whatever. <laughs> So one role contests is we always wanted that. We didn't always want it. We came to that and realized that right. was a good idea. Uh, the problem was as players, you have this, these limited resources to sort of push your outcomes, kind of like stress in Blades in the Dark. You yep. can burn brighter uh, in exchange for a shorter lifespan, kind of. You're burning, the, you're burning your candle. Yep. Um, and so when, when do I burn uh, to, to, to do, do more? probably when something is worth more glory but like if i do that like if we all, if we roll the dice and i see that i'm losing i can be like i'm gonna burn and then someone's like well if you're burning then i'm gonna burn <laughs> and well if you're both burnt then i and like now everything's a total mess because like wait a second ago you lost but now you're the best oh wait but now you're not the best because the person who is in second now has leapfrogged you and like what is happening so we had all these things you could do after the roll. We had all, it was just a mess. <clears throat> and so after that, uh, go play experience. That was the main point of friction. There was a lot of stuff orbiting around that, but yep. it was just like, we, all we wanted was to have like, say exciting stuff in these exciting moments. And it became this slog of procedural who, who go, who, when do I talk and what's my actual result? And blah. it was yeah, total mess. Yeah. So we finally got to that point of total exasperation, and um, I, I think I was running, at the same time I was running my hack of Agon, which is uh, Storm Furies, which is like Battlestar Galactica fighter pilots, um, and I was running on, on the side, like trying out different things in that little side game, and we hit on this idea of nothing after the roll, you, if you want to burn stuff, you burn stuff ahead of time, you got to right. go in push your chips in before before we show the cards so to speak um and then after the roll uh but before the roll you don't say what your character does you say i'm in this contest and i'm in because 
I am fleet-footed Adrastos, uh, beloved of Hermes. And so as you say that, I take my name die, I take my Hermes die, take my fleet-footed, um, I, and I'm in. But I don't say what I do. Right. Everybody does that. We all roll. And then that's both our outcome versus the strife player versus the, the GM uh, it, for winners and losers. And it's also the initiative order. So th- <laughs> this was the thing that solved the problems for us, where you start at the bottom and the people who have suffered, who failed, they say what they did in the contest and the results, how they fell short or how right. they are actually the best archer. But Hera knocked aside their arrow at the last second because she's mad at them. Or you, they narrate their failures however they want. And then you go up to the characters that succeeded uh, but weren't the best. And they contribute. I did this. I did that. I pinned him down while you did blah, blah, blah. And then the hero who's best puts the cherry on top, describes the winning the contest and why they're the greatest hero of the moment. And as soon as that or or that system was put in place, <laughs> it solved the procedural uh, rules of order kind of who talks issue. Timing um, and all that. All that sure, stuff. Yeah. And people's eyes got so big, like (laughs) they were just so excited to narrate their failures, first of all, like just they loved it. And then I, the Minotaur, he breaks my ribs and throws me down the mountain and I fall into the sea and I'm bleeding. And we're like, oh, okay, wow, (laughs) awesome, lost. That's that's cool, (laughs) good job. But then the just not only being best and getting the greater share of the glory, Mechanically, that's a that's a uh, a benefit for your character. Right. But having the final say is just so satisfying, yeah. and people we just saw people's eyes light up, and just everyone's talking, and they're just waiting. They're like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You talk, okay, yeah, right. You you do do a cool wall so run, awesome. and you do a backflip with your dive. You just wait. You just wait. I got it. I got the thing. Uh, and that was the that was the secret, and and because the go play group had such a bad time with that part of the game. Like yeah. it, that part of the game ruined it for them. Uh, and we were like, we, wow, we have to just, we have to kick all this stuff away. And that part of the game needs to be the best part of the game. Right. So um, it, it, fortunately it fell apart for them and, and they gave us this real like wake up call to make that sing. And I think it's the best thing about Bagon, honestly. Um, it, it's, it's, it's the most fun thing at the table is that, that process. So- when did you see it work, uh, John? So you're you're doing iteration after iteration. You're stripping away. You're stripping away. You've got the bad memory of of the convention <laughs> yeah. and the looks on their faces when you walked in the room. And then we uh, we cut to yeah. um, you seeing it work. Um, like how close was that? How much time has passed? What what, what yeah. made you know I did it? I got it. I captured it. It was a while. Uh, was it back and forth with me and Sean? I had. It would have been at least a few weeks, or maybe a month, because um, we weren't we didn't play anything right away. I had another side group, uh, the other main touchstone for Agon besides like Xena and and the Odyssey, is the Fast and the Furious uh, franchise. <laughs> okay, um, for various reasons, but. Um, <laughs> I, one could argue they're the modern equivalents of those heroes, but uh, yeah. also uh, the the their total disregard for gravity and physics is an important component sometimes in action yeah. stuff. So we wanted to highlight that. Um, so I was running a side game 
that was set in that hack uh, where there are Fast and Furious under underworld street racer criminal people called Ride or Die. Uh, and that hack was being worked on along with Storm Furies and Agon at the same time, basically just to try out different methods like what if you had an island that was just, you know, a bunch of pre-made contests? What if you had, you know, these, these just yep. trying out different stuff? Yep. Uh, and yeah, so that we had a weekly, or not weekly, but regular ride or die game. And the next one came around a little bit after Go Play ended. So between those two points, I forget the details. We worked on changing it up in, right. s- in some way. And then at that, at that next ride or die session, we did it. And the cherry on top thing... Uh, with the player describing the jumping their car onto the roller coaster track at the at the amusement park and driving on the track to catch up to to the bad guy and coming off and crashing into him and um, it was it was very satisfying and uh, a proof of concept of like okay all right I think I think we've thrown off all this cruft and um, and and those players had played the previous version and so oh wow. Um, and a couple of them had played all of the previous versions, and so they they got to go. Oh, thank God, this is so much better. Oh, geez, wow. Uh, oh, I feel so relieved. Wow, that was such a slog, and now it's so easy. And so it was it was nice. Um, a great I bet that that's gonna be everyone. a hell of a feeling, man. Yeah, it was really good. Um, yeah. Very, very cool. Well, John, I had a great time, man. Um, and I really appreciate you taking the time to, to sit down and uh, talk to me. And uh, I know that the people listening feel the same way. Um, I think we have some obvious plugs, but let's get them out there. Um, so if we've gotten some people excited, where should they go? Uh, so if you want to uh, look into Blades in the Dark, uh, bladesinthedark.com is probably the best first place to go. Um, you'll see their links to various places where you can purchase the game it's on drive through it's on itch it's on evil hat site um if you want the really nice hardcover uh go to evil hat that's that's where you get that um and that's what you want to do by the way they um, they're yeah they're printing as uh, really really it's really a it's a it's a gorgeous book john yeah they do such a good job, job with that um, yeah and uh there's also community forums uh there if you want to come and talk about the game um agon also if you go to evilhat.com you can get the the hardcover stuff from them uh i have a digital storefront of my own which is johnharper.itch.io all my game stuff is there my free games and my finished full book projects and all that stuff so if you want to see lady blackbird and the old one page games and stuff they're all over there um <laughs> you haven't hid them away no <laughs> no <laughs> uh yeah somebody bought lady blackbird today actually um it just it's uh, that the whole itch if you don't know about the itch world yet itch.io it is, it is a huge explosion of new games. Um, if you go in and, and look for the Forge in the Dark tag, I think there's like 40-some over there. Uh, there's so many cool ones. Slug Blaster just came out. It's like the 1980s, like, kick-flipping skateboard uh, monster-hunting teens and stuff. It's uh, it's super cool. There's so many. I, I like. There's too many to talk about, honestly. Um, <laughs> do you just shake your head sometimes when you just go like oh, yeah I, I, how did you come up with that <laughs> i know it's it's so cool to watch all this development um, i bet and just and just itch in general there's like solo rpgs is a big thing now uh probably I, i'm motivated by by uh, lockdown and stuff to some degree maybe, sure but super cool solo rpgs um so i thought i was gonna end the show now i'm changing my mind John. okay that's fine <laughs> what ha- what happened so 
like role playing games exploded and I, we can argue about when, but it's recently where mm-hmm. it, it, it it's it's huge. Um, and not just in the people don't have to hide in their basement anymore and do it because, you know, movie stars are playing it. Yeah. Um, as somebody who, unlike me, has has been with it for the past 25, 30 years. What the hell happened? Like, what was what was the tinder and what was the what was the fire? Do you, do you have any sense of of what happened? I, I have a hypothesis. I, I don't know. I'm sure some good scholarly work will be done in the future to really yeah. nail down that that's happened 40 years later with with some D stuff there's been some yep. really good scholarship um playing at the world is a really interesting book about the origins of early D and and stuff that followed it and i'm sure we'll get that uh for this but uh i have a friend who uh one of the playtesters actually um for agon and for for other stuff blades as well um and she, her, her life cycle as a gamer was she watched a Twitch stream of people playing live on Twitch on like a Friday. And she ran D&D for her friends on Twitch on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> She'd never, she had never played a role-playing game and never seen a role-playing game. So I, 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 that's exceptional. I think not just special. I don't think that's a, everyone's yeah, experience. Yeah. I, she, she's a, right. she's an amazing person. But it's demonstrative. But I, I think it says something about the hobby that, like I said in the talk earlier, like I didn't benefit from the oral tradition that my cousins and my uncles they played with someone who played with the late Geneva people, and right. so they kind of knew what it was because they had seen it done, and trying to play just by reading a book or something. Is really it's weird. It's the the hobby is not it it, it, it communicates itself so much better if you see what it what it, what it's like. I agree. And the explosion of live plays on on the internet, I think, has made it so that you can just look at that and go, oh, I get it. People sit around, they say stuff, they roll dice, yeah, all right. And they look like they're having fun. Yeah, I do. I do still think there's a barrier uh, when you actually sit down. If you say you get are really excited about. This this cool group of uh, very skillful uh, players um, with high production values and stuff, and then you have to do you have to like file your taxes to make a character. Um, that puts the brakes on really hard for yeah. some people, and for others, they're like, "Ooh, this is even more interesting." Yep. Um, but for the people that are just super turned off by that process, I think that also kind of helps explain this big, huge blossoming of games that are very very not. D and D, I guess to use a, a right. easy example, um, games that are either much simpler to grasp mechanically or much more simplistic in their premise and play. You play for like one session or something. It's very low commitment. Yep. Um, and that combined with um, people who went through that process, that that kind of like learn and then play immediately thing, like like Naja. Um, realizing oh i have something to say as a creative you know maybe i'm a poet maybe i'm a writer maybe i'm a painter whatever and this is a great medium for me to say that i yeah. can i thought i was going to write a novel or something but actually this would be a really cool little rpg project or a little zine Interesting. um or or whatever and i think that aspect of it has has also paralleled the explosion of just general play the number the number of players is possibly more than it's ever been in the history of gaming. It right has now. to be, John. Yeah, it I, absolutely has to be. I would think so. 
Um, yeah. Anything concern you as far as direction things are going or, or are you, are you feeling good about it? Do you feel like, you know, things are, things are moving in the right direction um, as far as, as a hobby and as an industry, or is there, is there things that you're worried about? I'm very, very optimistic. Uh, this is, I mean, I think this is the best time to be a role player. I think the future looks very bright um, in terms of, especially the, flourishing of entire communities and audiences and players that don't need to be connected to the mainstream of the hobby there's they still have everything that they need to be a satisfied role player and they don't maybe even know about the main the mainstream um, right i think that's cool uh i do think the mainstream needs to really hustle to even tread water uh, at this point like i feel like they're the, the the bigger game uh tent poles like in the next few years they're gonna have to do some work to if if they want to keep the audience they've grabbed with especially with with audiences that are outside uh, not under their umbrella you know right. the day that critical role for whatever reason if they decide like anyway we're not playing D anymore like wizards is just gonna be like well f- crap uh <laughs> That sucks for us, you know. It's they still have D and D and everything, but obviously there's there's a lot of of mojo there with that group, and it, they right. so happen that, that they play D and D, but they could do otherwise, and um, that's going to shift that audience to whatever whatever that other thing is, their own game yeah. or, or whatever. Um, and I think those tentpole people need to look at that and be worried a little bit, and maybe try to think like well maybe we need to adapt maybe we need to change and not necessarily continue to sell to the audience that we've always had um but it's tricky because like those people it still is. want the thing that they that they, that they have so yeah. um i don't know i don't know I, I, in the indie space i think every, things are going really well the diversity of voices is really great uh, it, it is could fantastic. be better but it's way better than it used to be well um, john i had this conversation today um because I come from the miniature gaming world and you don't see the level of inclusion and, and mm-hmm. diversity um, in mm-hmm. miniature gaming that you see in RPGs. Mm-hmm. Um, I was talking to my wife about it and she had her theories of why that is. Um, so that's a hats off, I think, to the R- RPG community and and to the concept, right, that that it, it that it is built to be inclusive and built to create cells that 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 can enjoy and, and make it theirs um yeah but of course it could be better there's no question yeah it um, is it is kind of a it's it's one of those tough things because you're you're like well this is great because it, it's so it's like a thousand times better than it used to be uh, right but also at the same time it's at square one so yeah, yeah. there's it, it, it i don't know it i'm that like i said i'm very optimistic and i think we'll continue to see a lot of flourishing in that space. And the question will be, is the, is the RPG hobby as a thing going to be defined by these big Mm -hmm. monolithic brands in the future? And I don't, I don't know. I I think maybe not, but generally that's how things work in our current system. Uh, So we'll see. But uh, I, I, I have several friends that I've met through, uh, indie rpgs in the last even like five years uh who came in to the hobby f- completely outside of that ecosystem of, the, of hasbro or whoever and have pl- are perfectly happy gamers and all they do is play like 
of these really niche indie games where you pretend to be a flower or whatever and yeah um, and it's great and and they're very well satisfied and they have a hundred different games to choose from uh yeah so it's i i love that i think that that we need to support that and um it it will the, one of the other big hurdles here is um as mark a marketplace gets bigger and bigger and bigger uh how do you get eyeballs on your work and um yep. very often things circle back around it happened to, to the early indie games like the i don't know you're like uh castle falkenstein or like that that era uh unknown armies uh, that that kind mm-hmm. of period where everyone's like yeah we're self-publishing and then they're like oh it's nice to have a publisher though that that was good for us <laughs> uh, and people start to realize why uh those things exist so all those pressures i think are going to happen again and again yeah. and again and again um, yep. but uh the good news is we don't just have a dozen rpgs uh, that are all written by dudes um yep and so i'm i'm i feel good i think i think the future looks it does look bright that makes me happy man (laughs) (laughs) all right john i'm really ending the show now i uh i do appreciate it my friend and uh we got to come up with another excuse to have you back on i would love that yeah this has been great all right man take care and for those of you that stuck around to the end thanks for listening be sure to follow us on facebook twitter youtube and twitch so you don't miss uh, the avalanche of content we create links are in the show notes Be sure to check out our shop on thirdfloorwars.com for the latest in gaming apparel and gear. There you'll also find the latest information for the U.S. Faux Tour. Find out where you rank in your conference or even in the entire United States. Get those models built, painted, and ready so we can see you at the next U.S. Faux Tour Masters event. Please take a moment to write a review of this pod on your favorite platform. Rating and reviewing helps us find more listeners almost as cool as you are. Be sure to share this feed with all of your friends who love tabletop gaming. Thanks for listening. Howdy folks, Craig here. Now, if you love gadgets as much as we do, you're going to love the new Third Floor Wars Gadget Bundle from Schooner Labs. Branded with the logo of your favorite podcast, it comes with two measuring multi-tools, a compass stepper for those tight and important movements, along with a compact dashboard to track your turn, strat, and scheme scoring, along with your soul stones and pass tokens. It is the perfect bundle for anyone who plays Malifaux or just wants to look cool while doing it. The link is in the show notes. Check them out and help support your favorite gaming podcast. All right. Um, pronunciation, Agon? Agon? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everyone says it differently. Uh, I, how, I, how, sh- how, how do you say it? I say Agon. Agon. Um, one more time? Agon. 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 Uh, I, I think in Greek it's more like Agon. Okay. I don't speak Greek, but I, that's what I've been told. Um, but almost everyone says Agon. They like, they like to say Agon. So I'm not a stickler. Um, but yeah. All right, cool. All right, I'm going to bring us back. I had this whole description typed out, and I'm not going to read it because we got too good of a conversation going, so I'm just going to launch into it. All right. (laughs) 
John, this is going much longer than I anticipated. So if I if just yell um, if we go too far, my uh, my schedule's open. So okay, um, all right. Whenever um, whenever you got to go is fine. But I I I don't have anything else tonight. So right. I just don't want you, I don't want you to feel chained to finishing the episode. Um, oh no, I'm totally fine. Stuff. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Good. Good. Um, this is fun, man. I appreciate. Yeah. It. Yeah. It's. It, I'm having a blast. All right. Um. And I don't know if you've done this on purpose, but you have seated the next segment. So like <laughs> when we talked, we, you, you like hinted at the I like to be in the middle of the action. We were talking about what you like to play. And mm-hmm. then we talk about blades and, <laughs> and, and you talk about how great it is to see my stuff being used different ways. And now we're going to talk about hacks. It's pretty funny. <laughs> I, I did read the, the, the call notes, so maybe it's subconsciously stuck in my brain. What's what's coming up? You should look into storytelling, John. I hear you might be good at it. All right. I'll bring us back. Oh, you're being patient with me. I appreciate it. Oh, no. It's uh, it's going great. Um, all right. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to hear uh, your your take on the mechanics, what, what, how they hit you and, and what you think of them. Well, it's funny because, and I had this happen to me when I interviewed Jay, um... Like, I use the Rumpelstiltskin thing because that's literally what it was. Mm-hmm. Like, I yeah. was not keeping track of anything. After 1995, role-playing games were not on my radar. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I got back into the hobbies that I loved with miniature gaming and things <laughs> like that. And then COVID, COVID made me say, you know what? To this day, my favorite has always been role-playing. And why the hell am I not doing it again? Um, so I, I did. I, was, I jumped back in and... Jesus, like it's, it's <laughs> everywhere, right? There's like there's drive-through RPG. What the hell is that? Yeah. You know, and and that, that I didn't know that existed a year and a half ago. Um, so it gives me a little bit of an interesting perspective on it. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I'm but really, it makes me a neophyte at the same time. No, so. I think that's great. I think you know that's often where you can hear some insights uh, from some someone who's just coming from the outside. So you know. <laughs> cool. All right, I'll bring us back. Well, that was tough, dude. Had a hard time getting you just to like hang loose and relax. And I know it's like pulling teeth. <laughs> it's just awful. <laughs> um, uh, I gotta um, add some of the people in your game group to my hit list. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I've wanted to talk to uh, talk to. I, you said his name and I already forgot it. Sage. Uh, Sage, thank you. Yes. Sage is literally on my list. Great. Um, yeah, so he's, if, he's, uh, he's, he's done his own podcast. He's very good at, uh, at this kind of thing. Awesome. So. Awesome. Um, and Paul um, Riddle is also in that group uh, who wrote <laughs> on, on Dying, um, which is fantastic. I'm going to whore you out, John, and get a bunch of guests from you. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I mean That's it, what it, I did to Dennis. So. <laughs> <laughs> you got you to gotta leapfrog. Through. Yeah, no, it's um. Well, it's it. What's fascinating to me about it, John, and we probably will, we'll start recording again here in a second. Is um, it, it's fascinating to me because doing this insider insight series with role playing games is relatively new. I used to be mostly focused on tabletop gaming. Yeah, I noticed that my, when I looked at your. Yeah, yeah and as yeah. my interests shift and not away from tabletop gaming, but I found role playing again. So obviously the podcast is going to follow me. That's just the way it is. Yeah. But it, it's so fascinating now that I've interviewed enough people that the overlaps and, mm-hmm. and, and the not closed system, but how much everybody, you know, has pulled from each other, just like any industry. And it, it's very, very fascinating. Very, very fascinating. Yeah. Um, all right. So what I was thinking structurally is talk about the world well here's a question for you what makes more sense for you 
uh, to talk about the game, then the world or the world and the game? Because I get the impression that the game came first, the world came second. Not exactly, no. Okay. Um, it, they are kind of intertwined. Um, so what makes more sense in your mind? Um, or just see where it goes? I could start out with kind of the origins of how we got started making it. I think that will touch on the setting and then the way the systems kind of came out of that. I think, Let's do that. I Perfect. That could Perfect. And then we'll just see where it goes. And if we dump a break, we dump a break, whatever. I'll, I'll play it by ear. That's great. Okay. You still here? Look, uh, the podcast is over. And you sat through all of the breaks and bloopers? Well, I mean, if you're here, might as well run over to patreon.com and become a supporter. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast too while you're at it, on whatever platform you're listening to. I do appreciate you sticking around. Take care.